Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Tuesday morning, February 7, 843-661-0937. I don't have any sports news other than it's Super Bowl week. Rev, who you got? The Eagles or the Kansas City Chiefs? Chiefs. Okay. You're taking the Chiefs, I'm mm-hmm. taking the Eagles. Okay. Just to be difficult. Okay. Just to be contrarian. I'll take the Eagles, you take the Chiefs for a Celsius at the 9 o'clock hour. Okay. You don't like the Celsius? I mean, I know you like the Pepsi Zero. I, I, Pepsi Zero is uh, is my Pepsi of choice, uh, but the Celsius, I've actually I haven't tried it, so I, you know, I think I I need to try it based on your ringing endorsement. Well, I mean, it, it makes you a little bit, um, it peps you up a little bit early in the uh, early in the day. I think the drink's designed for some time of the mid afternoon okay. when men our age, you know, the <laughs> the, the, the the middle age wall we hit, need a little pick me up. The, in the proverbial afternoon. wall that men our age yep. run into. At about um at about two thirty three three thirty ish and um but I hit mine a little bit early because I get up so John Brown early to do this um to do this job. Hey, Ronald Reagan would have been one hundred and twelve years old yesterday. We didn't properly celebrate um the most influential political figure of my life. It's hard for me to say he's the greatest president of my life because Trump may have been uh, the best president of my life. Speaking of Trump, I think we could spend a good bit of time today talking about the um the state of the union tonight it's 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 more than the state of the union it's the kickoff to the 2024 presidential campaign i mean it biden will begin proposing contrast you know here's where the democrats are here's where we perceive uh, the republicans to be and a uh, an 80 year old feeble man will begin to try and uh, create the contrast that elections have when they get in the um in the contested days later in in 2024 we're in early early 2023 i got a little bit of privileged information you ready Ooh. i got a source okay that told me yesterday and he didn't say don't repeat it so i'm gonna repeat it he told me yesterday that it's more likely than not ron DeSantis decides to get in probably by the end of this month early march at the latest so within 30 days within 30 to 45 days he's predicting that ron DeSantis really? will become an announced candidate for president of the United States. It's true. That is breaking news. Well, I mean, I got to believe that he will not share the stage with Haley. I mean, Nikki Haley will announce February 15th, formally, or 14, 14 to 15, in Charleston at a big to-do. Um, and I think her campaign will run out of Charleston, South Carolina. Um, but I gathered yesterday from a pretty reliable source of mine that DeSantis's people, quote-unquote, were beginning to interview consultants and lobbyists or consultants and the consulting class workers, people to run the campaign in South Carolina. And he was further along, further down this road than I ever imagined. So if you've got, you know, these choices of, you know, on one end is the establishment oriented Nikki Haley. On the other is the America first oriented Donald Trump. Somewhere in between those two is Ron DeSantis. Where is the appetite of the Republican electorate. I don't know that it gets any better than that. I mean, I would imagine Pompeo runs. Why? Because as a uh, college professor, it's easier to get your job or get a job if you're a former presidential candidate. I would imagine, I mean, is Pence announced yet? I don't think Pence is formally announced. Um, But there's a little nugget of math here that I want to proclaim first thing this morning. About 80% of presidential candidates who enter the race with a with a an approval, excuse me, with a a polling number in excess of twenty percent, 
win the election. It hardly ever happens that anybody announces their candidacy with a with a polling number of less than 20%. It's 20% of the time. I mean, if you're polling less than 20%, there's a 2 in 10 chance, 1 in 5 chance you win the nomination. It just doesn't happen. Now, now Haley's at what, 3.9, 5.8? I mean, I've seen her as low as 2.5. I've seen her as high as 6.5, 7-ish. I've seen no poll that has Governor Haley in excess of 10%. Um, I've certainly seen no poll with her in excess of, of 20%. So if 80% of the candidates, when they enter the race, have a polling number north of 20%, it's highly unlikely that Nikki Haley wins the nomination. So what is she playing for? Uh, what, what is she auditioning for? Um, is it 2028? Is it um, a VP slot? Don't know. What sort of relationship does Donald Trump and Nikki Haley have today? I don't know. What sort of relationship does Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley have today? I don't know. I'm trying to find where Nikki believes she fits in because I've said it. I'll say it again. She's ambitious and she's disciplined. So she, she's not going to make an enforced error. Rest assured of that. And and there was the discussion from, from what I heard and what I read, I guess, there was a cordial conversation between Haley and Trump when she called him, when she was, I guess, making her decision, and he encouraged her, if this is what's on your heart, uh, go for it. We've not seen that cordial conversation with uh, DeSantis. Yeah, I mean, it's not, a little, haven't heard any reports. It's a little testier with DeSantis and, and Trump. And that leads me to believe that Trump does not see Nikki Haley as a viable alternative. In other words... Um, Nikki is, uh, she's an important ingredient in the GOP today, but she ain't beating me in the primary, uh, with DeSantis. I think Trump goes, uh, that could be a hotly contested yeah. Republican primary. Do we have a call? We do. Let's go to the phone. It's breeze. Good morning. Well, you know, it really is kind of a good thing, but Nikki's plan is probably this. If Joe Biden can make it in there eventually, why the heck couldn't she, she knows she's not going to make it this time around. And a lot of things, one thing everybody needs to remember, Trump's going to be there four years, even if he does win. But I tell you, I was, I, it, was, it was funny yesterday at the studio when my billionaire leftist came in you know, talking about the balloon. Well, you know, three of them flew over there during Trump's time. Well, the week before that, everyone was saying something like, well, thank God Trump's not president. He probably that was a war with China. This would have happened during Trump's administration. But then you turn to come to find out that nobody knew about the balloon flying over during the Trump administration. And here's another question is, why didn't anybody see the balloon if it flew over during? I mean, the only reason we know there's a balloon is somebody in Montana saw it. If nobody would have seen it, then they could have, they were going to play it off. You know, the Biden administration, so, so right, right off the bat, I heard you say it yesterday, and I text you that. First thing you need to realize is everybody's going to lie about it. And I, will, I don't put either party past lying about it. But also, now they're saying that there were weapons on the balloon. Now, that's an act of war. Now, you know, I don't, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I, and, you know, the thing is, kid, you and I are similarly educated. So, uh we aren't the smartest guys in the world, but I believe you and I can come up with, during this conversation, some things that we can do right now uh, to kind of go let China know that we aren't going to be bullied around. First thing off is, you know, you shoot those balloons down before they get into the Pacific, I mean, before they get into the country. But another thing you do 
is you wage economic war against China. But they'll never do it because the first thing I would do is I would end the Green New Deal stuff. I would now go say no more subsidizing of electric vehicles. We're going to get every bit of coal, oil, and gas we get out the ground. We're going to move our people uh, put manufacturing here in America, even if we have to pay more for it. We're not going to have China doing our chips. China's not going to do our medicine. I said, well, you know, I mean, there was a time back in yours of my life, kid, you know, the United States of America and its allies did zero trading with Russia or China. You remember that? I do. How did we break the Soviet Union the same way? We beat them in an economic war. We didn't beat them in a, in a shoot war. We just made, we just broke them, broke them financially. You know, and it probably wouldn't be hard to break China financially if you daggone really, really sat down and started figuring it out. You just do it a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time. You know, and I guess the next question you have to ask you, what would be the end game for China wanting to go to war with us? What did they hope to achieve? I mean, did they want to kill everybody here in America and populate it with Chinese people? And then, you know, so, but anyway, it just amazes me how gullible my billionaire leftists are that are so highly educated to where they'll sit there and they didn't even pay attention to the fact that CNN even said that Trump didn't know about the balloon flying over. Well, my next question would be, why, why didn't he know? If there was a balloon flying over, why didn't his intelligence services tell him? Is that not treason also? Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it, my man. Uh, remember the good doctor from Belarus who teaches at Francis Marion last Tuesday. Real quick announcement. Dr. Bolt will not be here this morning at 8, but rather Thursday morning at 8. He's got a conflict, but he wants to be here one day a week. So he said instead of this morning at 8, he'll be here Thursday morning at 8. But I reached out to a good lawyer friend of mine, Patrick McLaughlin, and Patrick will be here at 8.05 this morning to discuss from a lawyerly, uh, in a lawyerly way, the Murdoch case. We talked a lot yesterday about the Murdoch case, and Rev and I agreed it would have it would serve a purpose to have someone of a of a trial lawyer mindset to come in and express what he thinks some of the bullet points are, where the strength of the prosecution, where the weakness of the prosecution. Um, lawyers interviewing lawyers yesterday, or lawyers interrogating lawyers, or having lawyers appear as witnesses was very interesting yesterday, about an hour and 22 or 30 minutes of uh, prosecution and cross-examination of a state witness about a lawsuit, a pending lawsuit, uh, the discovery and findings that was going to happen. So Mike and I had a very, uh, we had a disagreeable conversation, uh, but but I've got a lawyer that'll be here at about 8.05 this morning to, um, uh, to, to, to engage our listeners uh, of what he thinks the legal, the legalities we need to pay close attention um, to our go back to breeze for a second because he's talking about this um this rumor which is all it is that a a a balloon similar to what flew over america last week also flew over three times while president trump was uh, in office the trump administration has denied this byron york has an article in the washington examiner that corroborates a lot of information from the wall street journal um now, now once again the Biden administration had a press conference and divulged information that was a bit uh, unexpected when they said that this is not real unusual. In fact, three times during the Trump administration, 
there was a uh, balloon similar to this that made its way into U.S. airspace. The Trump uh, presidency did not. The Trump administration chose to take more passive than aggressive action. But but after that happened, um, Trump official after Trump official, or shall I say, former Trump official after former Trump official, basically said, "Wait a minute." I mean, if this happened, we didn't know about it. Even John Bolton, who's well, be, not a Trump well, fan now. Bolton was the second guy to say this. Um, Robert O'Brien, the national security advisor from 2009 to 2021, um, sent out a press release, and then here's the quote. I unequivocally can tell you I was not made aware of any flights over U.S. territory, nor was my staff, including those who were at the National Security Council all four years during the Trump administration. John Bolton, who was O'Brien's predecessor, said, and I quote, I don't know of any balloon flights by any power over the United States during my tenure, and I never heard of any of that occurring before I joined in 2018. I haven't heard of anything that occurred after I left either. I can say with 100% certainty this did not happen during my tenure. Um, Former Director of National Intelligence John Radcliffe um, released a public statement saying that um, it simply did not happen And um, former, I think he was the acting director of DNI, the Department of National Intelligence, Richard Gunnell, said um, that it didn't happen. Uh, Former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who was formerly a CIA director, said it didn't happen. Uh, Mark Esper, who had a big falling out with Trump toward the end, said it didn't happen. Um, Chris Miller, former defense secretary, said it didn't happen. Uh, Former, excuse me, former vice presidential national security advisor, um, Keith Kellogg said it didn't happen. Donald Trump himself said it didn't happen. Um, some of the former, from what I'm reading at the Wall Street Journal, some of the former officials communicated with other former officials, uh, wanted to make sure they were, you know, did I miss something? Let's compare notes here. I mean, here's what I remember about, you know, my time at the Trump administration. Um, do you remember anything like this happening? Nobody had any knowledge that it ever happened. So if it did happen... The Biden administration, who were not in charge at the time, are the only people that can make good on that, you know, I guess, innuendoed rumor, because that's kind of what it is. It's a rumor, and it was started by a press conference at the Pentagon when they said this is not unusual because it happened um, three times. Now, now, once again, Saturday is when this thing really began to uh, become more of a sensational media story. I mean, the media kind of latched on. I mean, he got a balloon floating around America, and we know it belongs to the Chinese. I mean, it, it stops becoming simply a political story, and a lot of it's the competent story. I mean, people who don't pay close attention to politics were, were you know, watching or hearing about uh, a Chinese balloon floating over the United States of America. You and I know more about the geopolitical relationship. Uh, a lot of Americans don't. I mean, it's still Cold War in Russia. If you talk about a Chinese balloon floating around America, a lot of Americans would say, so, you know, doesn't concern me much. Well, you know, isn't that what kind of where, isn't that our biggest trade partner? I mean, didn't that do, what, what is it, full of Amazon goods? You know, is that how we're, <laughs> is that how we're shipping Amazon products from China to America now? But, but then on, uh, on Saturday and Sunday, the administration, the current administration and its sources began to tell reporters that yes, the Chinese incursions had happened during the Trump years, but nobody knew about them. I mean, once again, all the Trump alumnus basically said, and they even went so far as to communicate with one another. Did I miss something? No. Did I? No, no. Nobody missed anything. 
because it probably never happened. But once again, Rev, in modern political culture, all you got to do is say, what about Trump? Yeah, but Trump. Yeah, what about Trump? Uh, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a Chinese balloon floating all across the United States of America, but if we can only bring up the name Trump, I mean, it polarizes half the country. And we only know it because we could see it. Yeah. Floating well, I mean, over, a, I mean, a, right reporter, a reporter in Billings, Montana, you know, some, some member of the public looked up in Billings and called a news station and said, hey, y'all looked up at this big balloon floating across Billings, Montana. I think the assumption was a weather balloon. I mean, we know that, you know, some of these big, uh, what am I trying to say? Some of these weather reporting agencies and weather monitoring sure. agencies have weather balloons. I've heard of those before. Sure. I mean, they measure the jet stream and the temperature of the jet stream as, uh, as opposed to 100 years ago or 50 years ago, whenever we kept records. But but in, in the Washington Post and the, the Wall Street Journal, that there's some interesting stories that, you know, the Pentagon knew of, here's their quote, you ready? past Chinese surveillance balloons near Florida and Texas. What does that mean? Near Florida and Texas. Does it mean that um, the balloons were over those states? Does it mean they were in, what, the U.S. airspace, which extends, I think, 12 nautical miles off the coast of Texas, off the coast of Florida? Nobody has made clear at all what they mean by these, these, um, these incursions were near Texas and near Florida. But either they were over the United States of America or they weren't. Either they were in the, um, the, the U.S. airspace, which I think extends 12 nautical miles out into the ocean, or they weren't. But, um, but these were previously undiscovered events. Nobody knew anything about these events in the Trump administration while in power. But the Biden Pentagon says, of course, everybody knows this happens from time to time. In fact, it happened three times under the watch of Donald Trump. And I think we've got to get to the bottom of this. And I think we need investigative authority. I think the committees need to get together and let's challenge the Pentagon statement. Let's challenge the administration statement. If there were three incursions by Chinese spy balloons during the Trump administration, why didn't the Trump administration do anything? Were they off the coast of Texas? Although I read this story, I'm sure you heard it too, that uh, was it General Milley uh, kept the information from Trump. Well, I mean, that makes no sense. I know. General Milley knows that there are balloons flying across America, but he doesn't tell anybody? I mean, listen to the list I just read off from. Richard Gurnell, um, John Bolton. Uh, I mean, it's everybody who's anybody in the Trump administration when it comes to national security. I mean, you've got um, Robert O'Brien, National Security Advisor. You've got John Bolton. You've got um, former Director of National Intelligence, John Ratcliffe, Mike Pompeo, Chris Miller, uh, Mark Esper. I mean, Milley knew and nobody else did? Really? I mean, are we to believe that? That General Milley knew that there were three times a Chinese spy balloon made an incursion over U.S. airspace, and he didn't tell anybody? Anybody with a direct connection to the President of the United States? I'm not buying it. It's the Trump equivalency. I mean, that's what it always goes to. Mm -hmm. The Trump derangement syndrome is alive and well in America today, if you don't believe it. There's a Chinese balloon floating across America, and the first thing the Democrats do is say, yeah, but Trump did it three times. 843-661-0937. Wow. Take a break. Back in a minute. But there are a lot of interesting and intriguing and unknown elements to this story. The Wall Street Journal, once again, had an interesting uh, report, and their quote was, these previous balloon flights were much shorter in duration 
possibly explaining why some went undetected at the time. Now, that's the journal reporting from the administration's perspective. There's an unnamed source in the current administration that is feeding the Wall Street Journal um, information and a narrative. Once again, the report in the Wall Street Journal says they're citing senior administration officials. One official said that much of the information on the flights was pieced together later. They went undetected, a senior administration official told the Wall Street Journal. This information was discovered after the Trump administration left. Only then, the official in this current administration said, did the Biden administration piece it all together and realize that the Chinese have been sending several massive balloons over the U.S. and nobody, nobody, citizen or military intelligence, noticed. That's my words, not theirs um, then. I I thought of the old story, John Prine. John Prine wrote a song, Jesus, the Missing Years. And Prine quotes the Bible when he says, he's at a dinner party one night, and somebody says, you know, from, from Christ's eighth birthday till the time he turned 30, nobody knew where he was. And Prine's a songwriter, so he takes that um, thought and he creates a song, Jesus, the missing years. But, but during the, um, the pre-delivery of the song, Prine says the story, tells the story, I'm at a party, and then the talk turns to religion, and somebody says that, you know, Jesus from the age of eight or nine until the age of 28 or 29, nobody knew where he was. And Prine says, so the most consequential and controversial figure in the history of mankind went missing. Nobody knew he was. Nobody. Well, I mean, the Wall Street Journal is basically saying that the Biden administration is saying nobody, not citizen, not, not civilian, not military intelligence, not member of the military, not, not anybody in the captain. Nobody knew anything except Richard Milley. So you can't say nobody knew because Milley said he knew it. He just didn't tell anybody. Now, everybody else in the Trump administration that would have been charged and responsible with, with knowing this sort of information says didn't happen unequivocally. 100% John Bolton says unequivocally um, Ratcliffe says, but there's a senior administration official in the White House today that says, look, I don't want to throw the past administration under the bus, but, but we've come in and you know how more competent we are. You know how much more together we have our, how much more our feces is consolidated than there was. We, um, we pieced this thing together after the fact. It's nonsense. It's made up. It's insanity. But they know there's an element in America today that believes whatever somebody has done politically, Trump has done something worse. I mean, you, you're playing on the gullible nature of the American public. Biden let it happen one time. Hey, let's, let, let's tell them Trump let it happen three times. <laughs> And half of America believes it. Oh, man. Uh, let's go to the vault. Joe in Hartsville. Hey, Joe. Yeah, I think they realized uh, what they just admitted was uh, Millie's guilty of treason. <laughs> Didn't Millie the one that called the Chinese and said, oh, Trump's not going to do anything. We're not going to war and all this. But these people lie to us constantly. Just like you were just talking about, nobody knew where Christ was from 8 to 30. Well, he was in the temple when he was 12, teaching the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So we knew where he was at 12, so they probably knew where he was later on. But lying has become such a big part of the federal Democrat Party that it's almost like they're doing stuff 
And then, you know, squirrel, squirrel. Just like the Santos thing. You know, it's the worst thing since sliced bread that went rotten. Santos lied. Well, the Democrats voted in a dead guy from Pennsylvania. If I was McCarthy, I'd say, okay, we'll remove Santos, but you have to let your dead guy serve for two years. You know, and, and you can take care of all that. All these people that got removed, they're so self-important that they're doing stuff up there. Just think about the federal budget. It, it has doubled every 10 years since Ronald Reagan. And and we're supposed to just go along with this? I don't think my pay's doubled every 10 years. I don't think yours has. But they're doing all this stuff to keep our attention away from there's two executive orders and I think I've talked about this earlier one's on the digital dollar the the central bank digital dollar and the other one's on promote access to voting where the federal government is involved in getting people out to vote which is totally illegal and they're pushing this down the road, and, and I'm afraid if they enact the whole thing together, you know, this will be the last free and fair election. Remember, Venezuela was the fourth most powerful country, richest country in the world 20 years ago. And look at it now. We're not exempt from that. And I just wish people would wake up. And this, there's so many airline pilots that saw this balloon and called in. If they'd have been here during Trump, they would have all called in. So it, it just continues to lie. I, I can't stress this on people enough. Call your senators and congressmen because they will listen to you. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, Joe. When, when the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal, I'm a little bit proud of journalism here. And the Wall Street Journal historically has done a pretty good job of, I mean, they lean right. I mean, there's no doubt. Editorial board in particular lean to the right. Some of the opinions lean to the right. The reporters at the Wall Street Journal are probably not a lot different than the reporters uh, at the Washington Post and New York Times. They come out of the journalism schools of academia. They've been somewhat indoctrinated into believing a certain worldview is more accepted than another. But when you read the Wall Street Journal report and then you juxtapose with the Washington Post report, um, I mean, there's some pushback and, and the Washington post is basically suggesting this is kind of unusual for the post to do that. The Pentagon is not being completely and totally honest about the past three. In other words, here's their quote. You ready? The defense department was not specific about where in each state the previous incursions occurred. Um, that's an important distinction. Were the previously undiscovered balloons over U.S. territory or not? And nobody can answer that question. In other words, it's easy for a current administrator or current member of the administration to say something, you know, just nonchalantly. Well, I mean, Trump did it three times. I mean, the media, if the media takes that and runs with it, then it is what it is. You know, half the country believes it. But, but a couple of media outlets pushed back a little bit. The Wall Street Journal pushed back. The Washington Post pushed back a little bit, and now there are no answers. 
So it's almost like the the members of the current administration expected everybody in the media to play ball outside of maybe Fox News and conservative talk radio, but they know that's a lost cause anyway, right? But they've already agreed that they treat Fox News as a as a you know, kind of an opposition network. They treat talk radio as an opposition party to to what they want to happen in America today. But when the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post start questioning the legitimacy of information or not, they don't have an answer. But they say it came near. It's almost like, well, I mean, we know that when Trump was president, there were three times we had a balloon enter U.S. uh, or somewhere over the United States. This happened three times when Trump was president. And the media says, ah, did it? Explain yourself. And when you dig a little deeper, you force administration officials to say, well, I mean, maybe it wasn't exactly the way we said it was, (laughs) but they came near Texas. They came near Florida. What does that mean? I mean, once again, U.S. airspace extends 12 nautical miles off the coast of Texas and Florida. Did it or did it not come over, um, you know, the mainland United States? Did it did or did it not enter U.S. airspace? Nobody's answered that question yet. And that's why we need a thorough investigation. I'm not a big fan of blue ribbon committees, but, but there's every member of the Trump administration who would have known whether this happened or not said it didn't. And a member of the current administration says it did. I mean, let's find out who's being dishonest, who's telling a lie. And once again, with the Washington Post and, and, and Wall Street Journal pushed back a little bit, it's pretty obvious who's telling the lie because they're starting to say, well, I mean, maybe it wasn't exactly the way I said it. Um, why are you pushing back, Washington Post? Don't you hate Trump as much as I do? I mean, that's the dog whistle. That's the unsaid. Somebody in the administration's looking at somebody at the Washington Post said, I thought we hated Trump equally. equally. <laughs> and it didn't matter if we made things up or not. It's like, hey, aren't we on the same team here? Yeah, but, it, but, but all, of a sudden, since all of a sudden, somebody at the, the Washington Post says, I got a question for you. Well, when you say this happened, there is no evidence. We've talked to Bolton. We've talked to former members of the Trump administration. They unequivocally say, no, this never happened. And somebody in the current administration is going to the Washington Post. Hey, what's going on here? I mean, this person's trying to be a reporter. They're trying to be a journalist. I mean, I thought that died a long time ago. I thought we all agreed that any negative information or any disparaging information about Donald Trump got carte blanche, right? I mean, nobody's going to challenge anything that we say about Trump. What are you doing? I mean, I know Bezos is trying to sell the post to buy the uh, the Redskins, which are the mighty Commodores now, but, 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 but he still owns it, doesn't he? He still hates Trump, doesn't he? I mean, are we really going to back back to the days of journalism and reporting and honest uh, integrity field? Um, no, we can't do that. Let's go to the phone. Here's Barry in Sherrod. Good morning, Barry. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, Ken, uh, China should just uh, paint that balloon, you know, rainbow colors or BLM, and then they get a free pass every time they want to want to come over to the continental United States. But uh, – Hey, Millie and Austin should be out of job, but nobody gets fired in the administration, so they just they they continue to do what they do. Millie, if if you recall, he was the he's the general that said he called China uh, while Trump was in office to give him a heads up on stuff. He would call his counterpart and uh, would not tell Trump about it. Millie's also the one that uh, did not agree with Trump during the riots about sending troops into the uh, streets to uh, get the riots under control. So Millie, you know, he is what he is. Austin is what it is. The military uh, higher-up, uh, the one percenters, 
have turned this country, uh, has turned our military into a communist regime. Um, you, you look at West Point, you can't even travel now without being vaccinated. Um, so it is what it is. Uh, like Joe said, just keep calling, people. Keep calling. Y'all have a great day. Thank you, Barry. Appreciate it. I mean, to me, we're conflating wildly different variations of a story. Let's assume, or incidents, let's assume, and, and it, this would be pretty easy to imagine, let's assume that a Chinese spy balloon was 12 miles within Hawaii. I mean, Hawaii is the 50th state in America. Let's assume that the international waters uh, are the, 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 the American airspace extends 12 miles off the coast of, uh, of its sovereign territory. Hawaii is included in that sovereign territory. I mean, isn't, that, I mean isn't, there, isn't there the attempt to conflate? I mean, is it different? I'm asking. Is it different for a, a, a Chinese spy balloon to pass 12 miles outside of Hawaii in the Pacific Ocean than it is to enter U.S. airspace in Alaska, go across western Canada, come into Billings, Montana, go all the way across the continental United States and end up in Surfside Beach, South Carolina. It is very different. But isn't that conflation? I, I, I mean, it's concerning, of course, if it's that close to uh, U.S. territory in Hawaii and it should have been dealt with, but totally different than what happened with but this But that balloon. happens a lot. I mean, we invade other nations' airspace. They invade our airspace. That there's always this questioning of the Russian MiG here. You know, the um, the American F-16 there. This balloon didn't pass 12 miles by Ohio. This balloon traversed across Alaska, into Canada, into Montana, and all the way across the United States of America. How are those similar one to another? But some folks in the administration are trying to say, I mean, once again, I don't know that that happened. But, but are they conflating the stories? Are they basically saying, well, you remember when Trump was president, we had this balloon pass 12 miles or 10 miles off the coast of Hawaii, and he did nothing about it? Those are the questions we need answered. And I don't think the American public believe they're one and the same. I think they're very different. And it wouldn't surprise me if there were a Chinese spy balloon that passed six or eight miles off the coast of Hawaii. That wouldn't surprise me at all. It surprised me a lot that the American government allowed a Chinese spy balloon to just, you know, milly around, no pun intended, for a day or two or three while um, just nonchalantly making its way across the United States of America. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. Got a question. Hmm? Did the balloon loiter? <laughs> I mean, was it under any power? Is it Was it at the mercy of the jet stream? I, you know, I don't know the answer to that, but I believe it was just yeah, wherever the wind blows it. And we had a caller yesterday that pointed out that you could change altitude on balloons and catch different wind drifts. But, I mean, was anybody in control of it? I mean, were the Chinese still in control of the balloon? Had America disabled? Like, like, like could they change yeah, the altitude? Yeah, that's where I'm headed. I mean, the... or was it just kind of um, loitering around in U.S. airspace? Let's go to the phone. <laughs> Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. Hi, uh, good morning. Uh, yes, uh, balloons says that they can change direction by going up and down and uh, catching different wind currents. Uh, it's not as reliable as uh, a powered aircraft, but uh, you can uh, navigate uh, fairly uh, well. And uh, that one seemed to hit every uh, nuclear site all the way across the nation. So I think somebody had control of it or they had a really good program there. But uh, as far as that, it seems like uh, 
a journalism degree is a waste of money. Uh, any kind of all you need to do is learn three words. What about Trump? And uh, and go with it. If you you can refute any argument or uh, uh, state any possibility. And as far as uh, those, I think we could save a lot of money on these four-star generals if we if we just let them go. Because I swear, if you just pick somebody off off the streets of Florence or Darlington, they could make better decisions. I mean, from Bagram to this balloon thing. And why in the world would they shoot it with a, a sidewinder? That thing's going to destroy it. Sends out a bunch of rods that shred anything within fifty or fifty yards, and that uh, when we could have uh, pumped a few uh, twenty millimeter shells through that thing and uh, let it uh, leak down and have a soft landing, and uh, possibly recovered some of the electronics on there because it carried. I don't. I don't know. Maybe it had a yellow school bus on it or something. I don't know, but. Um, Maybe you can come up with an explanation, Ken, why every decision that Trump administration, that that the Biden administration has made, has been disastrous, absolutely disastrous. And they say, oh, it's wonderful, it's wonderful, everything, the border's closed, there's no inflation, this is the best economy in the world ever. We, And uh, here we are in a mess depending on nine-year-olds to provide eggs for us. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937. I want to save my diatribe for um, after the break because we've only got about 30 seconds here for a hard break top of the hour. I mean, wouldn't you expect a more formal and disciplined response from the Pentagon or the intelligence community than here's what happened when Trump was the president. I expect that, but my expectations are very low but, with this. But, but what group. are our expectations? What are our demands? I mean, we have expectations. Do we right, Do we have a right to have demands of our federal government? Take a break. Back in a few. Was this a balloon or an airship? And what is the difference? Uh, Mike's talking about the steering components, how this steers and maneuvers. And is it, is it at the mercy of the jet stream? Is it intentionally at the mercy of the jet stream? Do we cut some of the steering mechanisms off at times did america did the american military scramble some of the um capabilities of this um this chinese airship that we believe was designed to spy on a what you know is, is it a was it an airship gone awry was it a balloon gone bad so to speak was it out of control when did the chinese did the chinese intentionally fly the balloon into american airspace off the coast of alaska See, those are not the questions we have answered, Reb. And it, it, the, the Pentagon, here's what the Pentagon has done, and here's where we are in American politics, I guess, to, to some degree. So the Pentagon's releases have been basically that this is not the first time this has happened. Um, it happened three times on Trump's watch. I mean, instead of explaining in specificity about the, um, the characteristics of the airship, you know, we, we believe that the Chinese designed this uh, this airship, this airship slash balloon, to do X, Y, or Z. We're not getting any of that technical information. We don't know any more today than we did when it made its way on the coast of um of Alaska. Instead, the narrative is Biden once, Trump three times. You know, if you're going to criticize the current president for allowing this to happen, then certainly you got to current criticize the former president for allowing it to happen three times. And that's kind of what we've been reduced to in American politics post 
Donald Trump. Trump broke the media. I mean, we know that to be true. Stop with the knock. I mean, Donald Trump broke the media. The media was on the precipice of breaking themselves. Trump just helped them along in a more accelerated um, fashion. The media was on their way to losing credibility, to becoming somewhat of a propaganda arm of the American political leftist movement, the radical movement that is American liberalism. Trump just did in four years what we thought maybe 16 to 20 to 25 years. In other words, there was an anticipation that the media would eventually become the propaganda arm for the American political left. Trump just got four years of work done where we thought it would have taken 15 or 16 or maybe even 20 or 25 years. And I think now you're seeing how, ah, how, what am I trying to say here? How, um, how consumed some of the American government has become by, by the fact that Trump infiltrated this abnormality of the way we're going to do things and how we're going to react and respond um, to certain things. But, but instead of having what, what NORAD, the North American Aerospace Defense Command, come out with an official release, the Pentagon with an official release, and normally you would hear like, you know, the, the, the vessel was hydrogen filled and it was 200 feet tall and it had, you know, a, a 25,000 payload. The estimates are um, it was intended to be a, um, uh, a spy airship and we disabled via some technology that we have available to the American military. But those are the sorts of briefings and updates we expect to hear. But what have we heard from the Biden administration? It happened three times under Trump's watch. But Trump. Yeah, I mean, it happened three times under Trump's watch, and we still don't know any more than we did. You know, when I began kind of studying this story a little bit, I read the Wall Street Journal Washington Post story. For some stupid reason, I ended up at the Biden Center, and I found an article, kind of an interesting article in the American Spectator about um, the, the website, the Penn, what is it, the Penn Center, the Penn Biden Center, for diplomacy and global engagement. You know what they're hitting on this uh, website? You know what? There's not a single <laughs> that there's not a single what? report or policy paper. I mean, it's a think tank. You go to the Heritage Foundation, go to the Cato Institute, go to the um, go to any other think tank in America, and there is policy paper after policy paper. There is report and analysis on legislation. Um, the the main product of a think tank is to think. The byproduct of that thinking is policy paper and reporting or analysis on it's it's nothing. I tell you what it's like. It's like my wife taking pictures at our tailgate in Gamecock Park. I mean it's Joe Biden here and Joe Biden there and Joe Biden shaking this hand and Joe Biden back in the seventies and Joe Biden. Here's Joe Biden getting off a plane. Here's Joe Biden getting on a plane. Here's Joe Biden with hair. Here's Joe Biden without hair. Here's Joe Biden when he didn't shuffle his feet. Here's Joe Biden when he does shuffle his feet. There is not a single policy paper. There's not a single report or analysis. Now, there are these catchphrases. You ready? Because I wrote them down. We're focused on <laughs> advancing the dialogue of internationalism. And you, you kind of click on advancing the dialogue of internationalism, and there's Joe Biden with the prime minister of Japan. Mm. And I'll be damned. There's Angela Merkel with Joe Biden. Oh. There's not a single, I mean, it's, it's almost like a coloring book. There are no words. There's a lot of pictures of Joe Biden with hair, without hair, stumbling and bumbling, not quite so stumbling and bumbling. Um, here's what I did find. The center's dedication to a democratic, open, secure, tolerant, and interconnected world benefits all Americans. 
Now, now when you go, when you click on that, you know what you see? There's Joe Biden at Davos. You know, it's a picture of Joe Biden throughout his decades of public service. The center's namesake, Joseph R. Biden, has fought to secure American global leadership by defending and advancing a liberal international order. The center will bring President Biden's lifelong commitment to public service to its every endeavor. Click on that. You know what you see? Picture of a Joe picture. Biden. <laughs> That's a lot of words. And another picture. And every now and then, there's Joe Biden. And if you look oh. real close in the background, I think a lot of that has been scrubbed. You might even see Hunter Biden mm. standing in the background. Now, those are the Ukrainian pictures and the Chinese right. pictures. The here's, Joe, here's Joe Biden in China. You recognize that guy in the background? Yeah, that's um, that's Hunter Biden. But but there is no policy. There is no report. There I told is you no the biggest analysis. surprise out of the whole news that came out about this Biden Center is that Biden has something called a think tank. Well, I mean, here, here's the deal. You ready? Come on. You ready? Ain't much thinking going on at this think tank. I can assure you of that. Right. You can agree or not with the American Foreign Policy Council. With, with the, uh, I mean, there, there's a lot of organizations in, in American politics that I don't think need to be existing. I mean, I really and truly don't. Um, some are advanced to conservative world order. Some are advanced to the liberal world order. But every think tank in the world has a website. And the website consists of policy papers, reports, analysis. This is like a coloring book. But that's all it is. There are pictures of Joe Biden after pictures of Joe Biden after pictures of Joe Biden. And whether you like Trump or not, Trump never reduced himself to a to a think tank. See, but it was an expensive way to do this think tank and set up offices and all this when he could have just created a Facebook page and put his pictures well, up and, there. And, and I get this. I mean, as much as I disagree with the policy, I mean, I get that Obama was a serious man. I mean, I do. I mean, I think Obama's uh, oratory ability kind of set him apart. I mean, I think Obama was a gifted speaker. I mean, an unbelievably gifted speaker. Well, in politics, being a gifted speaker is a lot of the battle. I mean, you, you, you can relate. You can resonate. You can influence debate and dialogue by the way you move people into believing, hey, that guy knows what he's talking about. I don't know if he does or not. He knows how to talk. And, and, and Obama knew how to talk. He inspired people. There you go. He would have been an inspirational political figure, whether you agreed with what he said or not. I mean, there, there was a certain aura about Barack Obama, and I think you would agree to that. I mean, I didn't agree oh, with yeah. much of what he said, no but there was a certain aura and, and persuasiveness about Barack Obama. Ain't much to Joe Biden. There, there's never been much to Joe Biden. So the last person on earth that you would deem appropriate to have a think tank would be Joe Biden. You, you, I mean, if, if Trump wasn't so narcissistic and arrogant, if you go to Donald Trump and say, hey, Mr. President, we've got this, uh, this group. They want to pay respect and tribute to you, and they want to start a think tank. The, the, the Donald Trump Center on Nationalist and, and you know, um, anti-intervention. Tr Trump would be the kind to say, of course, yeah, how many portraits of me do they need? Who's going to do the portraits? Who commissions the portraits? Um, but they've not done that. The, the, the last person on earth, that I think deserves a think tank is somebody who's never demonstrated much of an ability to think, and that is Joe Biden. And it's really not a think tank. I mean, it's a front. It's a, um, I mean, to me, it's kind of like where you launder money. And, you know, the Chinese give $50 million to help the University of Pennsylvania construct a, um, a Biden Center for, once again, let me get this straight. You ready? The Biden Center, uh, the Penn Biden Center for Global, excuse me, for Diplomacy and Global engagement which has absolutely no reports no policy no analysis no nothing but a bunch of pictures 
of Joe Biden. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Jeff in Florence. Morning, Jeff. Morning, guys. How are y'all? Hey, Jeff. Hey, I was calling about the uh, the Chinese spy balloon. Um, I was listening to one of the afternoon talk radio shows last week, and I think it was Thursday or Friday. I can't remember which one, but they were interviewing a congressman about the thing, and he he said out of his mouth that it it was uh, being controlled because it spent hours circling um, and sitting still over top of uh, our nuclear silos and stuff out in the Midwest. So and our air force bases and stuff and they said that they it was being controlled because it would go backwards against the wind with the wind side to side so it's de- it was definitely being controlled per a congressman on the radio now i mean you could take that for what it's worth but i did hear that come you know come through my speakers in my car last week i just can't remember what day um but as far as Trump and uh, this happened in three times on his watch. It's funny because yesterday morning I woke up and there was a story that stated it happened two times on his watch and then it went up to three. But I, I have to say I need some pictures because, you know, Trump, they leaked so much out the Trump camp that if, you know, he was putting sprinkles on a cupcake, America knew about it. So, you know, if uh, three Chinese spy balloons were flying through our airspace, the media would have leaked it to the public to try to make Trump look bad. But, um, I just wanted to call in and give you that information. I do remember hearing that. So as far as what I heard last week, it was being controlled. Y'all have a good one. Thank you. That confirms, I mean, that, that corroborates what a Yahoo News report says, and I'll read it verbatim. I actually had this yesterday. Two days later, the balloon did something unexpected. It slowed down um, over Canada. Then it changed course and headed south on a new trajectory that would eventually take it over the U.S. state of Idaho, Um that's when we knew this was different. And that's a U.S. official speaking on the condition of anonymity. And I'm always worried about what a U.S. official speaks on the condition of anonymity. But I go back to John Prine and Jesus. I mean, I really and truly do. Um, from the age of 12 or 13 to the age of 27 or 8, um, you know, Jesus went missing, so to speak. And I'm not trying to be facetious. I'm not trying to be sacrilegious by any stretch of the imagination. I'm trying to be humorous here. And if you'll bear with me, I think God has a hint of a sense of humor. But but it it seems to me that when you make these accusations that the current administration are making that Trump this happened three times on Trump's watch, but nobody knew about it. I mean, nobody knew with the current, excuse me, the former administration, what the current administration knows today. And I read it and I'll read it again. I think this is very important. Um, these are people who were not always on board with the president. Mark Esper, John Bolton. I mean, if they had a chance to throw Trump under the bus, you don't think they would? Of course they would if given an opportunity. But former Trump official, after former Trump official, I mean, this is per the Wall Street Journal. You ready? Quickly said... This did not happen. Robert O'Brien, the National Security Advisor from 09 to 21, said, sent out a, a press release, I unequivocally can tell you I was not made aware of any flights over U.S. territory, nor was my staff, including those who were at the National Security Council all four years during the Trump administration. Then John Bolton, who was O'Brien's predecessor, told the Wall Street Journal, I don't know of any balloon flights by any power over the United States during my tenure, and I never heard of any of that occurring before I joined in 2018. I haven't heard of anything that occurred after I left either. I can say with 100% certainty this did not happen during my tenure. Um, former Director of National Intelligence John Radcliffe said it didn't happen. Um, 
former acting DNI, uh, Department of uh, National Intelligence, uh, Richard Grinnell, uh, former CIA Director and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, former Defense Secretary Mark Esper, former Defense, excuse me, former Acting Defense Secretary Chris Miller, former Vice Presidential uh, National Security Advisor Keith Kellogg, Donald Trump himself said it didn't happen. So it, it's a little bit like, and then they corroborated, Ref, from what I'm, for the Wall Street Journal reporting, they spoke to one another. Esper called Bolton. Bolton called Grinnell. Grinnell called Trump. Hey, did we miss something? Uh, but the current administration is saying this happened three times. None of us know anything about it. Did it? And this goes back to, you know, Jesus, the missing years. So, so this happened. Nobody in the former administration knows anything about it. They're on the record now saying they don't know anything about it. They've talked to the Washington Post, not on conditions of anonymity. I mean, they've said, hey, I'm John Bolton. This didn't happen. I'm Richard Grinnell. This didn't happen. I'm Mike Pompeo. This didn't happen. I'm, um, I'm Richard O'Brien. This didn't happen. But there's a current administrator, a uh, current representative of the administration that says it did, speaking on conditions of anonymity. I mean, who do you trust there, guys? Really? But that's, and, and once again, Rev, we don't know the capacities of the, the airship. We don't know if it was active or inactive. We don't know if it was loitering around in space over or American airspace or if it was completely and totally controlled by the Chinese. There's been no clarity there. All we know is that on Biden's watch, it happened once. And on conditions of anonymity, it's been reported by current administration officials that when Trump was president, it happened three times. But that's, nobody saw it. That's But nobody knows about it. Right. Jesus, the missing years. <laughs> Who knew about it? Nobody. So the most consequential and controversial figure in the history of mankind, and from the age of 13 or 14 to the age of 27 or 28, nobody knew where he was. Nobody. So there's a, there's a Chinese airship that made its way into American airspace three times while Donald Trump was president, and nobody knows about it? Nobody knew about it? Nobody remembers anything that may or may not have happened, but the current administration, a representative of the current administration speaking on conditions of anonymity, that's what the media is running with? Yeah, because it's Trump. That's what we know. No matter what happens in American politics today, the reference point has to go back to Donald Trump. Orange man bad. Orange man bad. Orange man bad. Back in a minute. You know, I guess the Chinese, I mean, I could be this gullible, I guess, Rev. I guess the Chinese were real interested in what the weather was like around the Malmstrom Air Force Base in Montana, which sees, I mean, it basically oversees control of 150 intercontinental ballistic missile silos. <laughs> I mean, I would imagine that um, the Chinese are desperately interested in what the weather's like at the Allfoot Air Force Base in Nebraska. I mean, that's home to our, what, strategic command that's in charge of all our nuclear forces. So, yeah, I mean, it's an innocent Chinese sure. weather balloon, um, hopelessly caught up in the jet stream, trying to figure its way back home, and it just happens to be a little more interested in what the weather is like outside of Malmstrom Air Force Base as well as um, the Offutt Air Force Base in, in Nebraska. Um, and then, just for good measure, to make sure the weather is consistently being reported, it could have been green energy. I mean, the, the Chinese could be ultimately interested in whether we're doing our part of um, climate change and, and the energy. There's a, um, I think it's Whiteman Air Force Base in Missouri, which operates the, the B-2 bomber. So, yeah, I mean, let's see what the weather is like 
at um at Ma- Malmstrom. Let's see what the weather's like at Offutt. Let's see what the weather's like at Whiteman. And just in case, we, we need to find out what's happening with these 150 intercontinental ballistic missile silos and the uh, the strategic command of nuclear forces in America and the Air Force's B-2 bomber. It'd be very interesting to know what the weather's like yeah. around those three oh, military perfectly outposts. Perfectly reasonable. Sure. Um, I buy that. Um, so, so, you know, it just, it just lingered <laughs> in the winds around those military um, outposts. Let's go to the phone. Bob in Florence, morning. Hey, good morning, guys. I was watching an alternative news source last night, and they they were showing a new perspective of the missile hit on the balloon, and it was it was obviously taken from a telescope. It, it was a very detailed H, HD picture. It actually showed the missile strike the payload, not the balloon. The sidewinder hit whatever was hanging that array that was hanging under the balloon. That's what got hit by the missile. Uh, the, the resulting explosion severed the connection between the balloon envelope and the payload, and that's why you saw the payload falling free. Uh, my question is, you know, why, why in the devil would you have done that? Why, why would you have been interested in, of all things, destroying the payload, by the way, with a, with a $400,000 Sidewinder missile that was launched by an F-22 Raptor? that costs $400 million a copy and is $70,000 an hour to fly it. I mean, you talk about the height of irresponsibility, reckless spending of public money. Uh, I think Mike in Darlington said that you could, uh, you could have scrambled a 20-year-old F-16 fighter from Shaw Air Force Base and raked it with 20-millimeter cannon fire, and, and, and the balloon would have just leaked leaked hydrogen and eventually settled onto the ocean and could have been picked up intact. But our government chose to destroy the payload. That and and that's a troubling question in my mind. That's interesting because the majority thank you, appreciate that, Bob. The the majority of reports I've read, and I'm not seeing that alternative news uh report, but the majority of what I've read said it punctured the balloon at, at about sixty to sixty five thousand feet and then the payload came crashing down uh, into the ocean, the debris field, what, six or seven miles in expanse? I mean, that's what we thought it would be. Um, because once again, when debris falls 60,000 feet, it falls in a lot of different uh, places. Uh, most landed in fairly shallow ocean, somewhere less than, than 50 feet. And um, the recovery, from what I've read, will uh, be actually very easy or fairly easy. Um, and these are, you know, the, um, the folks who are in charge of recovery operations for the U.S. government uh, in the Atlantic, uh, I think the government notified China via the State Department um, that it had shot down the innocent weather balloon and that the American allies were being uh, notified. And once again, China condemned the action, said America was overreacting. But I've not seen what Bob's talking about. That's very interesting. If indeed there was an F-22, and I think the F-22 was from Langley Air Force Base in Virginia, if I'm not mistaken, a Sidewinder missile. Um, but but most of the reports I've read, and once again, I, I don't know. I don't know. Bob's saying something counter to what I've heard, but the balloon was punctured at about 60, 65,000 feet above sea level, and the payload came crashing down. Now, if there's somebody with a high-definition telescopic view of this, I would be very interested. And did the Sidewinder hit 
the payload and but because of the impact the payload sever itself from the balloon that would naturally probably sever the material i mean i don't know what the payload is but the balloon's not hard to understand right i mean it's a fairly durable material filled with either helium or hydrogen correct i mean i'm no yeah. expert here help me Rev. that's my I mean, assumption i mean you're more of a um aeronautics expert or you know I'm not hot, an hot air balloon i mean this is not a hot air balloon no. Because yesterday we talked the hot air balloon. I mean, the propane or some other gas heats up the air. The air fills the balloon. The balloon's lighter than air, and it begins kind of um, floating around, um, not in space, but, you know, above the ground. This is very different. This is filled with a, a lighter than air. Lighter than air. Um, yes. Yeah, gas, uh, helium or hydrogen normally. Um, but, but I don't know if indeed um, what Bob is saying is true. If he said he saw it, hard to dispute what you see with your own eyes. But hey, it's interesting. He said a alternate <laughs> news service. Um, you know, don't have any idea. I can't give full comments. I thought there. we were the alternate news service. Well, I mean, I think we are <laughs> considered the far more alternate than than <laughs> and, mainstream. And I wondered if they had an opportunity when when the jets were up there, and I presume doing some flybys and checking out the the balloon as close as they could get. Did they get some real good? pictures and views as to what that payload well, I mean, was. if we can if we can read a, a license plate from space surely we can look back the other way i mean certainly the american military has equipment or hardware right. that would allow them to observe the payload in a way you and i can't i mean i can zoom my cell phone in as much as i'd like i can't right. distinguish what the payload is and i wouldn't know what i'm looking for if i'm looking anyway i mean it could be you know it could be anything hanging off the bottom of that uh, balloon i wouldn't have any idea what it is but but somebody in our intelligence community our military community should know to some degree what they're looking at and what um what, what sort of motivations the chinese um do you have, have do you have some hope that congress will actually investigate and well, get I some do answers now that for republicans us. are in charge of the house yeah i mean I, I have a great deal of hope and it sounded to me like rubio and cotton in particular were um i mean those guys are somewhat hawkish so this is where we'll depend on the Hawks to really do the, you know, the work we need to do. And this is where being somewhat of an anti-interventionist is to my disadvantage because I accept that America doesn't need to know. Um, America doesn't need to try to export its way of life and, and, and belief system to places that aren't receptive to that. But when you, when you access American airspace, that's a different animal. In this case, a different airship. And, um, but that's interesting. I'll try to find out from the alternative news service that Bob's referring to whether or not indeed, um, the balloon was punctured by the sidewinder or it hit the, um, the payload. And was that the intent to maybe help destroy, uh, some of the payload? Look, the, the, the conspiratorial argument is the Bidens are beholden to the Chinese. It can't be, but so aggressive toward, I mean, that's the macro conspiracy. Now, now, once again, I think some of that's true. I don't know how much of that's true, but it's pretty obvious Hunter Biden's done well associated with Chinese energy companies. The Biden family seems to transact in business that includes Chinese energy companies. D does that cause the president to be derelict in his duty and responsibility of policing the American airspace? I don't, I don't know that. I mean, I can't conclude that based on what I know now, but, but there's a lot of questions that make you scratch your head and say, why would we allow this balloon to go from one end of America, Alaska. I mean, imagine what what's more Western than the West coast of Alaska, Hawaii, I guess in the Pacific ocean. So it, it makes its way into the United States on the Western edge of Alaska. 
It traverses Alaska, Canada, the, 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 the northwest United States, and then exits the southeastern United States, and nobody gets alarmed within government. I mean, there seems to be the, the only alarm is, you know, this happened once under our watch and three times under Donald Trump's watch. There was no briefing. There was no notification to the public to be made about, hey, the concerns to have or not to have. It was not, um, I mean, the, the, the government didn't seem to be alarmed by what was going on today. And, um, I mean, we preach every day on this radio show to some degree that China is a very serious geopolitical adversary. In fact, China says that America grossly overreacted by shooting the balloon down after it had made its way from one shining sea to another. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. John in Lamar, good morning. Hey, good morning, guys. I got a couple questions about this today. Uh, number one, why would you send an F-22 after something 65,000 feet in the air when an F-22 has a ceiling of 50,000 feet? And why would you send it from Langley when we've got F-15s right here in Shaw that can get there and do the job and get it everywhere? I'm of the belief that this is no more than another shiny object to distract your attention away from the, the Joe Biden thing. So, you know, um, I don't think you'll ever know what was on that on that balloon. I don't think you'll ever know where the balloon come from. Everybody's saying it's from China, but who in the hell knows? You know, really, I mean, they, they could have launched that themselves just to distract the media. So that's all I got. Thank you, John. Appreciate it. I, I get the shiny object argument. I mean, I do. A lot of times in politics, the, the, the public will be distracted by something that the media and body politic want us to be distracted by. But why would you divert attention to a Chinese spy balloon to distract from what? I mean, what, what? I mean, if you're the American public. And the classified document story has kind of moved off the headlines well, I, during I, this but, time. But, but, but it's not moved off the headline with a jobs report number. Right. I mean, we had, a good good job, we had a good jobs report number Friday. I mean, if I'm in the Biden administration and my intent is to get you looking at something else, I mean, I talk jobs. I talk, you know, the slowing economy and the th- talk of recession. And, you know, but we got, we got a very, very good jobs report Friday. I mean, you know, that's the way politics naturally reacts or responds or or coordinates itself. Um, Dave Baker is a Republican. Dave Baker wants to talk about something that paints the Democrats in a negative light. I'm a Democrat. I want you to pay attention to the jobs report that came out Friday. So, so we've always had this debate about don't watch the shiny object, but rather what's really going on in the minutia of American politics. But, but why do you not want me looking at, at other things, but you want me looking at a Japanese spy balloon that made its way into Alaska and and leisurely in a loitering sort of way made its um, made its way across the country is that really the shiny object that you won't be paying attention to? I just don't understand that. I understand the theory of don't watch this but that. I understand the theory of you know. We need to get them consumed by this story so they don't pay much attention to the <laughs> other this story. This doesn't seem like a good distraction because it doesn't make them look very well, good. Well, I mean, it doesn't to me. In fact, it's made them look so bad they've not tried to explain themselves, but rather try to contrast themselves with the president. But you know, the Trump. former president did it three times. You know, at least we're not as bad as Orange Man was. Let's go to the phone. <laughs> Josh in Darlington. Hey, good morning. Hey, good morning, guys. Yeah, the only really issue I have with the balloon thing like ken said previously the satellites 
great capabilities of getting the uh, document information and stuff. I'm just curious of when NORAD or if NORAD even picked that balloon up and how early. Uh, that's the only thing I have a concern with. Yeah, have a good day. Thanks. Well, I mean, the, the reports I've read, and look, take it for what it's worth, but the reports I've read said that NORAD began tracking the balloon the moment it made its way into the continental United States. Now, is, is, is Alaska the continental United States? I mean, it's not the contiguous United States, but is it the continental United States? I don't think it is. I mean, I've always looked at Alaska and Hawaii as outside of the continental United States. So if you read, I think Yahoo News had a story, AP had a story, and the Washington Post had a story that NORAD tracked the balloon's movements across the continental United um, States. The United States began gathering information about the balloon. Um, it almost leads you to believe that we weren't paying close attention to Alaska, that once the balloon made its way into Alaska, maybe nobody knew about it. I mean, it's very sparsely populated. It's, um, it's not front and center in our geopolitical world, right? I mean, we don't think about Alaska a lot. I mean, it's the, um, the wild frontier, the last frontier. Um, it's, it's, it's referred to in a very different and unique way than the majority of, you know, the, the continental and contiguous United States of America. And, and I, I don't know that to be true, but what I've read from several news agencies is that NORAD tracked the balloon and its movements once it became, um, evident it was in the continental United States. Um, I've been, I've read that the U S government began gathering information about the balloon once it entered the continental United States, how it worked, um, how it was reacting to jet stream, um, how much maneuverability it had by whomever was was controlling it. I mean, there's a lot of contradictory stories here, and we don't have answers. The, the Pentagon has not said much about what they're willing to disclose. The government has not said much about what it's willing to disclose. And the longer we wait, the more curious the American public become, the more skeptical and contrarian by nature the American public become, I just think the, um, somebody over the weekend should have had a press conference and said exactly what they believe with clarity and why they believe it. But instead the weekend was filled with what Reb news about Trump. Mm. And this is not unusual. This happened three times on, on Donald Trump's watch. Now Trump denies that the Trump administration denies that the folks that you believe would be aware if this had happened on Trump's watch, deny that including Mark Esper, not a big fan of Trump. John Bolton, not a big fan of Trump. They have unequivocally 100% denied the fact that um, somebody's telling you the truth. So that's why we needed investigation. And that's why we need, I guess, the Foreign Policy Committee, Senate Intelligence Committee, uh, the, um, is it Homeland Security? I mean, what, what purview does this um, fall under? Who controls, who needs to be in charge of investigating what we know and don't know? Um, but if you're going to make an accusation of a former administration, you need to have credibility. So if you're making the accusation that, that a former administration allowed this to happen three times and, and the former administration says nobody knew about it, then, then let's get to the bottom of that. That's something I we need to investigate ourselves as we investigate why China was allowed to have a spy airship make its way from one side of America to the other. And once it left, you know, the continental United States and got over the ocean, we shot it down with an F-22 from Langley. Those are a lot of questions that deserve to have answers. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. 
Michael in Hartsville. Good morning. You're on the air. Good morning, guys. How are you doing today? Good morning, sir. Hey, got a question. Well, not a question, but why has nobody else uh, touched on the fact? Why didn't Canada shoot the balloon down before it got to us? Canada's a bunch of candy asses. (laughs) No, but I'm serious, man. I mean, I'm serious, too. (laughs) Trudeau's not going to order anything to be shot down. He's too interested in how he's perceived in Davos. You can't shoot balloons. You can't shoot Chinese balloons down and be respected and revered at Davos. I, I, I understand your point on that, but the, the I mean, I still have a, my, a hard time in my mind getting wrapped around this is, you know, we knew this was a Chinese balloon when it came through Alaska. Is, is that right? Correct. All right. Then at that point when it crossed front, and I know it takes a little time to put these orders, you know, uh, in place, but why at that point didn't we call Canada and say, look, you, you guys shoot this down. We got your back. Um, we don't want to get into us. That's, that's kind of an interesting thought. Now, the better, thank you for the call to appreciate it. The better question is how that balloon ever get out of Montana. I mean, I understand it making its way through Canada because Trudeau is not exactly Josie Wales. I can't imagine <laughs> that balloon making its way out of Montana. Um, but but I don't know that high-powered rifles have 60,000 feet in their um, in their capacity and range. But it doesn't surprise me the Canadians didn't shoot the balloon down. Uh, Trudeau wants to be revered in Davos, and you're not very revered in Davos if you don't take care <laughs> of business like that. Hey, I want to mention something before we go to our next break. Um, you have traveled with me the journey of health care. I mean, I have rant, ranted and complained and moaned and groaned about being an individual contractor, not being on a big group plan, not working for the government, how complicated and unfair I think the American healthcare system is today. Um, I've got an option for you. I've got an alternative for you that I want you to listen for just a second to what I have um, to offer. Many of you believe that because open enrollment is over, you got one of the ACA Obamacare plans. Um, you don't really like it, but it's the best you could find. Um, once you choose that Obamacare plan during the open enrollment period, you're stuck for the year. Um, if you change, there's some penalty or tax or uh, as punitive as the government is today. Maybe they arrest you or something crazy. Not true. Nothing like that is going to happen. Um, we know that health insurance is complicated. We know that everyone's situation is different. There are multiple options to choose from. Uh, one option that I have been made aware of when planning health insurance for me and my family is a guy named Christian Levis at Real Choice Healthcare. Um, been helping people get the right sort of coverage at the best rate for years and years and years. If you're paying for your own health insurance, and believe it or not, some of us are, um, if you're on a COBRA plan, if you're uninsured, you can call Christian. Very, very advantageous if you think you're paying far too much for your health insurance policy to call Christian Levis, L-E-V-I-S, at 864-362-4700. 864-362-4700 or go to realchoicehealthcare.com. If you're under the age of 65, you're reasonably healthy. You don't need maternity coverage. You don't need all these other benefits that Obamacare requires you to have. You can save at least 30%, sometimes up to 60%. 
Call Christian, 864-362-4700, or go to realchoicehealthcare.com. I did. It's worth it. Back in a minute. So normally in the 8 o'clock hour, you have Dr. Will Bolt, early American history professor at Francis Marion University, history chair at Francis Marion University. We talked Jeffersonian and Hamiltonian and the ebb and flow of early American history. Dr. Bolt had an issue this morning with a schedule that will force him to be here on, not force him, will allow him to be here Thursday instead of Tuesday. We got into a fairly extensive debate yesterday, Rev, on the Murdoch trial. Now, mm-hmm. now it's spelled Alex Murdoch. It's pronounced Alec Murdoch. Only in South Carolina can you get away with something like that. But um, I asked a good lawyer friend of mine and someone who I aggravate occasionally about legal matters. Uh, Patrick McLaughlin of the Wakila Firm is with us this morning. Patrick, good morning. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. So, so I, I want you to I want you to take my analysis and say no, you're you're way off base, or uh, you, you may be somewhere in the ballpark here, and then offer a uh, a more detailed analysis from a lawyer's perspective. I believe that that the guy killed his wife and kid, and I believe the reason he killed his wife and kid. I'm gonna be. I'm gonna give you some psycho babble for a second, and this is from the Hannah Pamplico Institution of Higher Psychology and uh, and Brain Surgery. Very familiar. Okay, with I, I, you got a similar degree, I, I believe. Um, I think Alec Murdoch is like the majority of people. That there is there is a portion of him that is good. There's a portion of him that is not so good. The portion of him that is not so good is sociopathic. The portion of me that is not so good, I don't believe is sociopathic. Uh, There's a portion of me that ain't good. I'll readily admit that. I wish it weren't the case, but it is, and it rears its head on rare occasions. But I think I have a moral compass that would disallow me from pointing a gun at my wife and kid and pulling the trigger. There, There are a lot of crap I'm capable of, Patrick, that I don't like to admit. I don't think that's one of them. I, I just honestly and truly could never imagine finding myself in a position that I could rationalize that. So that's the human complex. I believe that Maggie Murdoch was about to file divorce or had filed for divorce and the discovery that we're going to find out Alec Murdoch was not who we thought he was. He was not a wealthy, um, influential lawyer. He was a guy scheming and scamming his law office to the tune of however many millions of dollars. Is that... Is that in line somewhat with what you imagine uh, reality is? Well, I think that's somewhat in line with the theory of the case the state wants you to have in this thing. Is that um, obviously, you know, going back to the Hannah Pamplico psychobabble, um, if you look at what a sociopath is, it's thumbnail diagnosis is disregard for others. And certainly we have that with Alex Murdoch just from the fact of his death from, from his own clients, who by, by all means, he's admitted, uh, his lawyers came out and publicly admitted, you know, months ago. Um, and in fact, he, he's confessed judgment to over $4 million that he stole from um, Gloria Satterfield's children. So to, for a person to be able to do that to people who have suffered that type of tragedy and loss, there's certainly, you could armchair analyze somebody and say they're a sociopath but as far as the theory about the divorce and things like that well that's certainly something that it sounds like the defense is going to challenge you on right if you go back to what the opening had been um which which i thought was was a, a pretty risky thing to say in the opening for for dick harpootlian to say that uh 
you know, you're going to hear from all these witnesses and not a single one of us is going to tell you that there's anything wrong with uh, uh, Alec and Maggie's marriage, which, you know, good Lord, I looked at the witness list and there's only over 250, I believe, people who are named on the witness list. Pretty brave to sit there and say nobody on that witness list is going to tell you that, uh, is ever going to tell you that Alec and Maggie had problems. Of course they did. All marriages have problems. But um, I think that's certainly in line with the theory of the case that the state uh, wants to push forward and now is going to be able to push forward based on Judge Newman's ruling yesterday, letting in the financials. And that is that Alex was living in a financial house of cards and that the, the, uh, the check had come due and that that drove him somehow to commit something that even your your ninety ten theory that you talked about, it, most of us, even that ten percent we got that ain't good, would never go to. Um, I think it's pretty clear that that was also the defense's defense is that he's his ten percent isn't that bad, and I think you can see that from the way they laid out just how horrific that crime scene was in their opening where they got so graphic about it. And, um, you know, a lot of people, unfortunately, can probably see we have spouses kill each other all the time. And it's not unusual for spouses to kill each other over money. But the leap of killing your own child over something like that, um, I think that's where the rub comes in. And the question is, is the state going to be able to convince the 12 jurors who ultimately will be making that decision of that? And it's not a preponderance of evidence. It's beyond a reasonable doubt. This is a criminal trial. I mean, I've read more than you care to imagine, and I understand a little bit of it. So from a, from a lawyer's perspective, what has been some of the most effective moments for the defense and the prosecution from, from, from someone who trials cases inside a courtroom such as yourself? Well, I think uh, certainly the, uh, the most compelling witnesses so far in this case have been um, the, the regular folk who have testified. Uh, the two young boys who, who were friends with Paul that testified earlier, there was another friend that testified yesterday. I, I didn't get to, to watch very much of his or listen to very much of his, but the, uh, the Rogan fella who, was, who had the dog, that was the subject of the Snapchat video. Um, the other young man that testified that day, I think his name was Will Loving. Um, the, those two witnesses were very, very compelling. Um, obviously, yesterday, the, the caretaker for, um, for Alex's mother was incredibly um, compelling because that lady was scared to tears being on that stand. And... So those have been the witnesses who have been compelling for the state. And keep in mind, this is the state putting them up. So when those witnesses could, if those witnesses at all, if the jury connects with them, that's the jury connecting with witnesses the state have, call, have called and put on the stand, and that's good for them. Now, the flip side of that is, you know, the defense uh, did, perhaps to their own detriment with those uh, two young boys, get in get into uh, their knowledge of the relationship Alec had with, with Paul and Maggie and that they can never see this coming. I say to their detriment because that is what Judge Newman ultimately found opened the door to letting all this financial stuff in. Um, 
but uh, I think maybe uh, the simple fact that the phone testimony that came out where it, it seems to be that they got out that Alec was walking with his phone at the same time Maggie's phone was not moving and it had the orientation change. And so, you know, it, it, it very, very clearly, or I shouldn't say clearly, but it certainly seems like you can make the argument that Alec was not near Maggie's phone then and she's supposed to be dead and somebody else is moving it. So is there someone else? Um, uh, that testimony I thought was pretty effective um, for the defense. But uh, overall, it's uh, the main concern I have is you have to go into this case if you take it. You have to acknowledge the reality of this case, which was that the financial stuff was coming in. You had to assume it would come in. So it doesn't surprise you that that information is now admissible in the murder trial? No, no. I mean, you know, listen, you, you, you have to. You have to prepare for the worst all the all the time in the case if you're a trial lawyer, right? And you have to assume that that stuff is coming in. Um, quite frankly, uh, I believe the most effective way to have handled that would have been to embrace it all and wrap your arms around it at the beginning of the case if you're the defense. Such it, a, I mean, how do you do that? You get well, and instead of getting up and talking about how honored you are to be there to defend Alex Alec Murdoch, you get up and say, "Let me tell y'all something about my client." You ain't going to like him. He's a liar and he's a thief. He stole from his clients. He has lied to his family and friends. He has ruined his family's good name that has been good in this county for generations. But he didn't do that. And then you make your entire defense out of the fact that they're going to make this whole trial, Mr. Walters is going to make this whole trial about proving a financial crime. And let me tell you a secret. He's going to prove it because we admit it. But what he isn't going to prove to you is a murder case. And here's why. And to that regard, they've given you a lot of mother's milk to make that argument. Um, as is often the case, um, prosecution is over-trying that aspect of the case. All those guns they put in the other day, why? Why are you putting all those guns in? Is that, was that expert able to say a single one of those was the murder weapon? No. Well, why are you putting it in? Why are you wasting your time? And if you're the defense and you've, you've framed your case to admit all that financial stuff, then you get to get up when they do all those things like that and basically point out to the jury that these guys are wasting your time. None of this matters. They're not offering you any real evidence that Alec, killed maggie and paul okay stop there is there real evidence as far as you're concerned that that alec killed maggie and paul well i mean uh, the, there's real evidence they're dead certainly because you got two dead bodies correct there is there is a wealth of circumstantial evidence that that alec did it um but the lawyer's job is to to point out that ain't evidence he did you know there before the grace of god go any of us we any, any husband could come home and walk into a murder scene and find people he loved uh, brutally murdered. Uh, anyone who finds that could react strangely, could be confused when they sit down and give not one, not two, but apparently three recorded interviews and make mistakes. Um, so you, you, you've got a lot of hurdles that you've got to get over as a defense, but you know, at the end of the day, 
the state needs to answer the questions for the jury. And what you could do as a defense, an effective defense, is just keep him pointing out they're answering questions for you that do not matter. They, they are refusing to answer the questions that really do matter. The fact that we don't know, um, Rev, do we have a call? Okay, mm-hmm. we'll get to the phone in two seconds. The fact that we don't have the money accounted for, is, is that relevant to the murder case, or is that obviously it's relevant to the, the financial crimes case? But, but I mean, I've done some math in my head, and it, I mean, there's a lot of money that we can't account for. How, does the state need to try to intertwine the, 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 the missing money and the, the likelihood that that motivated Alec to do, um, you know, th- this horrific crime that they're suggesting and charging him with? Well, the question becomes, uh, if, if you're the defense, uh, how big of a deal do you make of the missing money? Because it's a lot of money, isn't it? Uh, By by my counting. I mean, supposedly it's it's upwards of $10 million. And, you know, you and I were talking off air a little bit before. Um, It take a lot of vice to burn through $10 million. Mm -hmm. And um, that's the question that the state's purported motive should raise in anybody's mind. Okay, this was all about money. Where in the world is it? What happened to the money? Isn't that what the lawyer was suggesting yesterday? In the in the beach boat case, when he said, "I know," when they said Alec was broke, and he said, "I knew he couldn't be broke because there are trials that are settling or cases that are settling, and Alec's involved in settling the cases." I mean, didn't that? I mean, as as a layperson, I don't understand the way that world works as you do, but but I got to believe that he's basically arguing there's money somewhere. I don't know where it is, but there's money somewhere. Well, I mean, uh, the, the law you're referring to is Mark Tinsley, sure, who, correct? Who is the uh, civil attorney who represent who has represented the Beach family? Um, the Beach family being the the, the young girl who was uh, tragically killed in the boat accident, and and of course that's the state's theory of the case is that Mark pushing to get that financial information is is what brought uh, Alex's financial uh, house to you know the cards to a head. They were all going to tumble. And, and um, may have been the motivation for him to do this horrific. That's right. Crime. Well, and I think what Mark, what Mark is referring to is the fact that uh, listen, if you know anything about Hampton County, uh, and you know anything about that law firm and that family, um, and I think Mark said it during his his testimony, like li- listen, it wasn't just that I didn't believe he didn't have money. My client's family believes this family has generational wealth. They weren't going to buy it. So, so if you're Mark, how are you going to sell settling for? Five hundred thousand dollars. I think he testified that they were saying, "Oh, maybe he could scrape together a million. You know, to to the Beach family who views, who has lived in Hampton County and and knows the image that the Murdoch family has portrayed financially for generations. They look at that as as pennies for the life of their daughter. Kind of an insult. That's exactly right. And uh, and I think that's what Mark was trying to explain yesterday. Was listen, I didn't have a number in my head. Uh, the number that it was going to take is going to be the number they don't want to, you know, the number that was going to hurt because, you know, at the end of the day, a family who goes through that type of loss, justice is like Mark said, a pound of flesh. It, it's got to hurt a little. Um, and, and Mark, they were not allowing Mark the information to know whether or not it was really going to hurt. Let's take a, um, let's take a call if Patrick doesn't mind. He's a, um, well, he's a trial lawyer. I know he doesn't mind. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's go to the phone. Then we'll take a break. Cocky Mike is on the line. Hey, Mike. Hey, man. Hey, guys. How's it going? Uh, hello to your guest there. Cause, uh, Ken, he has pretty much said everything, uh, you know, that I was going to say 
calling in this morning. Uh, I don't know if your guests heard my call yesterday, but I, I told you yesterday, um, you know, how uh, the, the morning of the murder, when the bookkeeper came and approached Alex about the $750,000 um, check that was missing, that was the first indication from the law firm to Alex at that time. And then what happens? Mark Tinsley is the very first witness yesterday, and he blows that out of the water and um, and starts explaining that uh, um, he knew Alex was hiding, you know, hiding his his financials from him, and he didn't know why. And now he does because they had a they had a court date of June the tenth, which is just three days after the murder, um, where all this was going to have to. You know the uh, 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 the rubber was going to meet the road, and all of this was going to have to be disclosed. So, but you know, like your, I'm sorry, what is your guest name? What's your name, sir? Patrick McLaughlin. Patrick. Okay. Hey, Patrick. Um, Patrick saying, I mean, he's he did owing me. If you subscribe to the, he killed his family because he was he was going to try to cover up financial crimes. Then Mark Tinsley just absolutely was a foundation of that belief to tell you everything he was an extremely effective witness yesterday for that avenue and for that belief um but uh, again i don't know that i don't know that any of that is worthy of killing my wife and child now like you said and like a lot of people say well you know a bunch of people kill their wife and I subscribe to the two-shooter theory, and I always have. So I'd, I'd be interested. You know, the kids that were put on, I don't know how that helps a prosecution because every one of them said, I love Mr. Alex. I love Miss Maggie. They had a great relationship. They treated me like family. They treated me with respect, and they just welcomed me into their arms and into their home. So I don't know how that helps. I don't know how that helps the prosecution. So. Hang on to that, Mike. Oh, we're going to take a break. Can you hang around one more segment? Sure. No okay, problem. Patrick McLaughlin, a trial lawyer with the uh, Wakila firm, is here with us trying to break down from a lawyerly perspective the um, the the Alex Murdoch case that South Carolinians refer to as the Alex Murdoch case. Back in a minute. See, when, you, when you've got an unserious host, you got to find serious guests. And we found a very serious man to come in this morning. Patrick McLaughlin is a, um, is a trial lawyer who enjoys trying cases. I mean, I read a lot in preparation for the radio show. 96-ish percent of all cases are plea bargained. They never make it to trial. Um, I'm on, you probably should have left before we start this segment because I want to drag you off into the way, kind of, kind of the realm of the unknown. Um, Let me buckle up. Okay, and, and, <laughs> and you, you like this stuff as much as I do. Patrick doesn't run from controversy. I know that to be um, true. Quite the contrary. Um, when, when all this news began breaking... I wrote down a word, Ozark, the Netflix documentary. Um, you know, is there going to be Mexican drug cartel, Chinese businessmen, and olig Russian oligarchs? I mean, I don't know what's out there, and you don't know what's out there. But is that such a crazy idea or notion or theory to have? I mean, if we've got north of $10 million missing, and we really don't know where the money is, we've got a one of the goriest murder scenes in the history of South Carolina Am, am I crazy? Are we crazy not to consider that as one of the viable options? Well, I don't think you can say it's crazy, especially when you look at the fact that you had early on in this saga, uh, we, uh, a vast amount of South Carolina who have probably never heard of, of them heard about a group called the Cowboys. 
as a result of this case, who is a a uh, a group of uh, folks in that area that engage in uh, nefarious criminal activity. Um, in fact, that came out, I believe, during trial when um, we had the one officer early on who was testifying, and uh, he talked about uh, Alec had had been involved in a case had had brought him in to be the uh, gang terminology expert. I don't know if you remember that witness, but uh, so so that got brought up a little bit that he had prosecuted a case involving uh, that group, um, and I believe it came out on the stand about how dangerous that group had been. Um, but you know, we go back to what we talked about, and that is where's the money, and that that's something that nobody can answer yet. And so when that question is left out there unanswered, um, people are going to come up with their own conclusions on it. Do you think we get that question answered during the hearing? I mean, the, the jury will decide, and I want to get to the jury in a second, the jury will decide guilty or not. But but as we progress through the information and, and, and trying to paint the story, and you, you said it uh, earlier, and I think you're exactly right, I mean, there, there's a theatric to this. There's a storyline. Um, you, 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 it's interesting what you said earlier about the guns. That confused me. You know, uh, you bring a gun, and then another gun, and another gun. Uh, are you arguing that that's the gun you think the murder was uh, committed with or not? And, um, I mean, it, there is a theatric and a storyline to this, Patrick. Am I right? Well, in good lawyering, there should be. Um, you know, quite frankly, it, it seems a little scattered. I don't know that I've... I have really grasped a coherent thread yet um, uh, weaving through these these cases. Now, I w- I'm, I'm sure the state's argument on that would be, well, we really weren't sure if we were going to be able to get this financial stuff in, so we, we, ha- we weren't able to start our case with that theme from the beginning. Um, but uh, it, it should be for good lawyering is to have a, a coherent thread coming through it. Now, whether or not those questions get answered, I, I don't know how they would be. I mean, you know, let, all right, let's, let's play your Ozarks theory out. Um, if that's true, if there is cartel involvement or something like that, um, well, it would have behooved Alec to come out and say that already, right? Well, and if that is, in fact, the reality, what happened there's a reason why he hasn't come out and said that, right? Because he's not going to say it because it could put other family members in jeopardy. Sure. Well, that ain't changing no matter what the jury says, right? Uh, so so how big a case? You're talking about you don't think anybody's painting the picture as well as it could be painted. I don't think you're knocking on lawyers. You're just saying, I, I think there's been some missed opportunities there to create a narrative and, and, and spin a story that the jury would completely and totally understand and maybe buy, buy into. How big a deal is this for an AG's office in a state like South Carolina prosecuting such a prominent and establishment uh, established figure in American, excuse me, in South Carolina politics and, and judiciary? I mean, what's at stake here? for the AG's office. Well, I'll tell you how big it is for the AG's office. It got the AG in a courtroom. A couple of days in a row. <laughs> That's right. It's been a while since that happened. Um so uh, I don't think there's I don't think there's any doubt that this is the largest case that the, the AG's office has prosecuted in a courtroom probably since uh, back in the what was it the Home Gold cases? Mm-hmm. Do you remember mm-hmm. those? I mm-hmm. mean, 
Probably since then. I mean, you you've been around a little bit longer than I. Well, have. I mean, but but I remember that case well. That's in the Upstate with a lot of um, uh, it's similar to that. A lot of noted people and personalities creating um hardship and crime of the Upstate. Okay, let, let's stay in this lane for a second. So, what happens to the AG's office if they don't convict Murdoch of these murders? Well, I mean, it's, and, and here's what I'm saying because you and I share this. Some nobody in that courtroom is eating what they kill. You do, I do. I mean, if we don't get ratings on this radio show, we don't stay on the air but so long. If you don't try cases and win cases and, and, and settle cases, you, you don't get paid. Um, the AG's office is a, is a branch of government. It's a division of our state of our state government. If they lose the case, they don't miss a paycheck. They, they have another week of vacation. But, but so, so what motivates the state to be as good as they can be and have to be to, to win this case? Well, I mean, you, you, you're not going to be a lawyer and step into a courtroom if, if you don't have a ego and be a lot of pride. Okay. So, so there's not a lawyer in that courtroom that wants to lose. Um, but let's, let's be candid. Alec Murdoch will never see a free ray of sunshine another day in his life. Right. I mean, he's, he's, he's not getting away from the financial crimes that, and it, that to me is is one reason why, you know, the the best defense in this case would have been to wrap your arms around that in the beginning, right? Because you're going to jail for the rest of your life, man. You ain't getting out. So at this point in time, we're talking about whether or not you're going to be remembered for killing your wife and son or not. Um, so at the end of the day, he's going away to jail for the rest of his life. Um, so whether or not the ag's you know if the ag's unsuccessful if it's you know a, a hung jury or are now not guilty what i would su- suspect would happen would be uh maybe you see some of these financial crimes get tried before a retrial of a murder case right and and you get it line you, you know you convict him he pleads he gets sentenced to whatever in federal jail you take your time bringing this back up for a murder trial whether or not you need to or not oh, because this thing's gonna wind up costing i mean i mean we're on we're going into what day 12 mm-hmm. day 12 or mm-hmm. something like that man man we we ain't even gotten started on how this much location. longer do we have patrick i want to say like last week i believe judge newman issued some type of administrative order like extending this thing by two and a half weeks and i think originally it was set maybe for three so and that's one thing that so we're off into march well that's right that's one thing that probably a lot of your your listeners do not understand um man trials are hard they are physically mentally and emotionally draining for everybody for everybody i mean you got to understand something those lawyers when this case is over uh, every day and and the judge adjourns they're not going home and and picking up their lives and resting and relaxing they're living with this thing nonstop. they're waking up at, at four or five o'clock in the morning and not being able to go back to sleep um because they're thinking about things um it is i i can't fat i think the longest trial i've probably ever been in was maybe six maybe seven days i can't fathom trying a case this long it it, it, it is it is going to these these lawyers are going to be war slap out by the time this thing is over last question why did the state not ask for the death penalty if they believe alec murdoch committed these crimes 
I've seen, I've heard the narrative, not seen some of the gory details. Really don't want to see. I mean, I'm not crazy about seeing a kid with his brain laying beside his feet. Ain't something that floats my boat. But, but having said that, if the state believes he's responsible, how do they not ask for the death sentence? Well, you get a whole bunch of theories amongst prosecutors on, on the death penalty. Um, a lot of them feel like it, it's, it's a waste of money to go after it um, because it, it, it makes trying the case exponentially harder. Um, it, it prolongs the case if it's a death penalty case. Um, and let's face it, here in South Carolina, when's the last time we put somebody to death? You know? Um, so it's going to cost more, be harder, take longer. And at the end of the day, they're not going to get executed. So, so why make the work harder if you don't have to, that's the theory on why you don't do it. Right. Um, morally speaking, is there a good answer to that? I mean, if you believe this guy is that cold blooded to have done what he did and you believe in the death penalty, then how do you justify not going after the death penalty? Well, that's a that's a question that I don't know. I have an answer for. Alan Wilson makes that call. I'm mean, the AG of South Carolina makes that decision. Oh, he. I mean, it's his office who's going after it. You would think so. And and AGs normally run for governor eventually at some point in time. I hate to put politics in the middle of it, but you know that as well. I mean, you're chuckling under your breath, but that's. I mean, that's got to be taken into consideration. What, how does this potentially affect my political future? Yeah, well, well, as much as I'd like to beat up on Alan Wilson, I mean, I, I don't think it's not unusual for prosecutors not to seek the death penalty nowadays. I mean, it, it, it really is. I, I can't remember. Um, I mean, I recently uh, agreed to associate on a, on a uh, potential capital case for the sheer fact of just to be able to associate on one because uh, we have so few here in the PD that um you know you have to watch i believe i think you have to second chair two to be death penalty certified and i've been practicing 20 years i've never even sat on one you know uh, that's how rare they are nowadays gotcha thank you for being in hey thanks for asking patrick me, mclaughlin I'm, I'm gonna hold him to this as the trial progresses and we have questions and we will i'm gonna reach out to him and see if he'll join us once again maybe once or twice as we head closer to a decision on whether alec murdoch will be charged with double murder or not take a break back in just a few. And Patrick was a good guest. I mean, I knew he oh, would yeah. be. He brought a, um, a a degree of expertise as well as a common sense, you know, let's look at things as normal people look at things. And um, I just knew he'd be very interesting and very informative and very understandable and relatable when it came to explaining how he sees the progress of the trial thus far. I couldn't help but notice that you still are proposing the Ozark scenario as as something well, I mean, that is the, the only reason i go there is the 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 lack of accounting with all the money i mean there's a lot of money that's not accounted for where is that money i mean that's the only reason i go down the road of a russian oligarch or a chinese businessman or a mexican drug cartel there, there seems to be somewhere around 15 ish million dollars that we can't account for why is that? I, once again, I don't, I'm speculating. I don't know that to be the case. But, yeah, I still believe there's something kicking around out there that we don't know about. Let's go to the phone. Roger and Coward. Morning, Roger. Good morning, fellas. My wife is transfixed by this trial. And so we ended up going one morning last week uh, and uh, listening to it in the morning session. 
And uh, by the way, uh, the state of South Carolina should be absolutely ashamed of I-95. It's ridiculous. If you drive on it very long, you'll tear up a vehicle. You're here. But anyway, <laughs> you know, but anyway, a uh, couple of things that uh, I got out of what the lawyer was saying a while ago. The first one, and I've said this before, and I know this is a part of our legal system, but it's a part that makes the ordinary guy like me just shake his head. Let's say that he is convicted of these crimes, these murder crimes. He's not going to get out of jail. Yet we're going to come back and we're going to spend a tremendous amount of time in taxpayer dollar trying him on financial matters when he's never going to get out. Now, that, that's, that defies common sense to most people. The second thing I'm saying is when you're talking about the death penalty, I want to make it very clear. I'm in favor of the death penalty ideologically, always have been. For premeditated murder, it ought to be automatic. It not, shouldn't have to require 12 jurors to do it, which makes it difficult to get. Ideologically, I believe in the death penalty. No problem. Realistically, let's do away with it. That horse has left the barn. It's so hard to, first of all, get a death penalty. Secondly, that it's ever going to be carried out. So why are we wasting time in state legislature about the method of, of, of death? It, it's ridiculous to continue wasting time and energy on this thing, it's over. It's sort of like same-sex marriage. I don't believe in same-sex marriage. But the horse has left the barn. It's not going back. So why do we keep harping on these things that are never going to change? Thank you, Roger. Appreciate that. You know, I share uh, a similarity there. I've never been more pro-life than I am today. I am as anti-abortion as I've ever been in my life. I respect those that have a different stance. I just, um, you know, my, my research and study and understanding, my faith, uh, my perspectives um, all lead me down the road of believing that life begins much closer to conception than I originally anticipated um, the science would lead me to believe. I am less capital punishment than I've ever been. So I'm more pro-life less capital punishment. My motivation is similar to Rogers, the practicality and pragmatism of, of the issue, but it's not really a deterrent. I mean, if, if, if I thought capital punishment were sincerely a deterrent, now, now, once again, philosophically, I believe in an eye for an eye, and I think if you take someone's life, the state should probably have the right to take to take your life. But, but practically speaking, it's just gotten to a point where it doesn't make much sense. And I think Patrick talked about how hard it is to convince someone, you know, to kill another. I mean, if you're on a jury, you want to convict somebody of a crime. Do you want to be a part of convicting that person to death or sentencing? Now, I mean, I get the judge makes the sentence. I get all that. But, but, but the jury makes a finding that could eventually lead to a judge sentencing someone um, to death. And as, as, a, as a mortal man or woman, I don't want that responsibility. I just don't. I mean, if I'm on a jury, and this is a capital punishment crime, I've always got to be thinking about, am I going to be one of 12 people that allow the state to kill another human being? I mean, I understand, you know, the, um, the, the if you murder someone, you lose your right to live any longer. I mean, I, I certainly philosophically accept that as reality, but I think punishment 
is not only punishment, it's, it's, it's intended at some point in time to be somewhat of a deterrent. And I just don't see any research where capital punishment is a deterrent to crime. So, so I do believe you can have a philosophical perspective, uh, but be pragmatic about, you know, the realities of judiciary and how they process and, and, and progress through. Um, but, but it is hard, you know, if you're a, if you're a South Carolinian and you, you hear the story of Alec Murdoch and you, you hear the lawyers agree, but they disagree on a lot of things. Nobody disagreed that Paul's brain was laying beside his feet. So, so if somebody perpetrated that act of violence against another human being, why don't they deserve to die? I mean, why would that person be allowed to live another day? And, and I get that. I mean, philosophically, I'm with you. I just think you've, you've got to be pragmatic and practical about applying the law in very real-world um, applications. Take a break. Back in just a few. So, Rev, if you had to listen to one or the other all day, every day, would it be John Fogarty or Neil Young? Uh, Fogarty. Okay. Yep. By, with, by with, nose? Yeah, by a pretty big nose. Okay. So you can deal with Fogarty, just not so much Neil Young. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I mean, the, the voice on Neil Young just... He sounds like a crotchety old man. You know what I mean? <laughs> just the way he sings. Even saying, and I think he has turned into a crotchety old man. No, no a couple doubt. of callers are there. Let's go to the I think ball. he was a crotchety old man when he was young. Yeah, a younger man. Yeah. Uh, Nick in Lexington, good morning. Thanks for holding on. Good morning, fellas. Ken, when I was in college, uh, Alec and I, really Alec and I, were on the uh, football team at Carolina together. Both of us did a lot of clapping and pra- clapping on Saturday and practicing through the week. But when our lockers were next to each other, and he pronounced his name Elick, E-L-I-K, and it's because he's from that aristocratic uh, Fritz Hollins area of the Low Country. You know, Elick, go down the lane a ways and get me some milk. So that's why his name is Alex, and they pronounce it Alec. Good deal. Well, thank you. Alec Murdoch is, um, yeah, I've heard it pronounced that way. Thank you, Neil. Appreciate that. And, um, and, and look, guys, I mean, I want to be as clear as I can. This isn't court television. This isn't the, the Law & Order Network. I mean, I don't have the ability to give a, a judicial dissemination of what may or may not happen, what has happened, um, it's interesting how on point I am when I talked to Patrick, uh, I asked Patrick when he got here, said, you know, about all these guns, why are all these guns? It confuses the jury. I mean, to me, it does, unless you believe this gun is a murder weapon. Why do you introduce as evidence three or four or five similar guns? Could have been this gun. Could have been that gun. Could have been another gun. Wonder, wonder what gun it was. I mean, I, I just think you got to be careful about not over since I want to overstimulating the jury. Um, it was obvious to me yesterday, Rev, and I watched, uh, about an hour worth of Mark Tinsley's, um, appearance and, um, he was, I mean, he admitted that his entire strategy was to turn up the pressure, to turn up the intensity, to force Murdoch to blink, um, to first Alec Murdoch to, um, to kind of waver in his, I don't know, Rev. His, um, I mean, it was a very influential family. He actually talked yesterday, Mark Tinsley did, about the um, when, when Mallory Beach was killed in the boat being driven by Paul Murdoch, and we know now Murdoch was drunk. Um, that would have been in 2019, if I'm not mistaken. 
um, that the, the beach mom, her, I think her name was Renee, wanted to go down to the creek to see the bridge in Beaufort County or in Beaufort, South Carolina, where the boat had crashed. And um, the scene had been, you know, you know it, it had been cordoned off. You know what I mean? You couldn't go there. Um, she's told she can't go. A few minutes later after that, Alec or Alex's father pulls up um, and his wife are allowed to go. They're waved under the tape. They're allowed to go down to the bridge. She was very upset by that. And that's when she felt that she was not going to get a fair trial because of who the, the Murdochs were in that you know area of the state. Very influential, very um, a lot of legacy issues in that county, in that area, in that uh, judicial district as it relates to prosecuting uh, who oversees the um, judicial system in South Carolina's low country. Um, and, and she knew that that family wielded enormous influence in that region. Um, and when she saw that demonstration, I guess, of what she perceived to be favoritism, she reached out to Mark Tinsley. And Tinsley let it be known that his job was to force Alec. Um, they talked about being at a, a trial lawyers association meeting. And, I mean, this is Tinsley's testimony. He says that Alec walked up and said, you know, what are you doing, bud? You know, something, I guess, trying to intimidate or, or you know, you're coming after me personally. And that's when, as Patrick said, there, there was about a half million dollars of insurance policy. They were told Alec could cobble together maybe a million dollars. And and Tinsley wanted, um, I mean, he wanted the title to the house in Edisto. He wanted to um, sign over um, Moselle. I mean, he had, you know, much grander numbers in mind. And, and I think he admitted that it was about money. It was a pound of flesh. I mean, what, Make what, it hurt what, 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 exactly. I mean, what, okay, let, let's say this. Let's say that Bill Gates' son is driving a boat that your daughter's in and Bill Gates' son is, is drunk and runs into a, a bridge and kills your daughter. And he's responsible for, for, you know, I mean, I don't want to say he's guilty of murder, but it's certainly reckless homicide. I mean, his, his, um, his antics and activities have led to your daughter being dead I mean, are you settling with Bill Gates for the same thing you'd settle with a man on the street? I mean, I wouldn't. I mean, I'll level with you. It's not about the money. I'm not trying to put a, a price on my daughter's life, but but the family, you, you believe, needs to suffer. You're suffering. Isn't it human nature to say, I want that family to suffer as well? So if Bill Gates settles with you for $2 million, do you really believe he's suffering? I mean, he's, a, he's worth, what, 50 or 60 or $70 billion. I mean, it, it's a small percentage of his wealth that goes to settle a case. Um, and I think Tinsley made that known. I mean, he thought Murdoch was a wealthy man. It, it, I think Tinsley still believes there's money missing somewhere that is not accounted for. W- where is that money? Is it $10 million, $15 million, $20 million? I don't know. Don't have any idea. Tinsley didn't lead me to believe that he knew. But he never bought into Alec being broke. It, it was obvious to me. And he said, the reason I know Alec's not broke is... We, we settle a lot of cases, and 50% of the cases we're settling, his firm settles. And some are really, really big cases. Some are not so big cases. Um, so, so where is the money? T- to, to me, that's still a central question that, that nobody has clarity on what the answer is. Where is, how much money is it, and where is the money? Let's go to the phone. David in the PD. Hey, David. Yes, sir. Hey, quick comments. Uh, what did Leonard Skinner say about Neil Young? Y'all can 
think that back in the day. Yeah, Southern uh, man don't need him around anyhow. Anyhow, yeah. Uh, you 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 brought up a good thing. What, what Justin Trudeau was going knock that blow down. He ain't no OG cowboy, so he ain't John Dutton. So he's he's uh, Justin the Davos dandy. But and this is a great subject this morning about this trial of Kenneth. Have you ever been to Islington or heard of Islington before? I have not. No, okay. I'm going to give you all off of I-95, exit 53, it's Highway 63. And I call it the Radio Forest Gum Highway. And why is that, Dave? Um, It's because radio, the movie was filmed in Walterboro. Forest Gump was filmed in Barnville, South Carolina. It links that to Barnville. When I always think about because I grew up in this area, if you watch the Forrest Gump movie, there was a little scene there when he had his leg braces, got his foot uh, caught in the grate. And the reason they uh, did this movie in the town like that, because they could recreate the 1950s without having to create a set. So when you go to this area, you, you're going back in time. Uh, and, and it just hurts me. I watch this thing, man. I see the, the, the gentleman, Patrick, he brought this up. I don't want to mention the guy's name. There's some ear witness testimony about Cash the Chocolate Lab. All right, there's this background voice. I saw that kid there the other day, and I knew his granddaddy. And I'm like, wow, this I mean, he's probably one of the most honest people. And what you're seeing, these witnesses are some of the most honest people in the world. But they are being mixed up in this crazy litigation world. And I, I brought up two movies, Radio, Forrest Gump. How about The Firm? Remember that movie with Tom Cruise? You saw all that craziness that went on there? And what I like about this trial, you're seeing the inner workings of the litigation industry. And another thing, too, they call it venue shopping. Okay? There's a lot of – it's not just Murdoch is involved in all this kind of venue shopping and all that. Uh, but here's the the ironic thing. He's in an area – Man, most people are sympathetic with uh, defendants on this. Now, if you're in a, a insurance-type claim or whatever, they're going to want the insurance claimant to get the money. But th- this just has, has exposed a lot of things that's going down in that area. I'll leave you at that. Thank you, David. You know, and Patrick said something interesting um there's no, I mean, to me, and I, I'm not, I'm not a defense attorney. I'm not a prosecutor. I don't know any, I mean, I don't know what the strategy should be, but I think when you go to that case, believing that the financial crimes will eventually make their way into the case, I mean, the proceeding is not going to be all about the death, but be all the murders because the murders had to be, I mean, so, so why would a man kill his wife and kid? Right. I mean, if you're on a jury, um, he seems to be a pretty decent guy. I mean, obviously he's got a bad side like everybody does. He does the stupid things like everybody does, but to kill his wife and kid, I mean, what would motivate somebody to kill his wife and kid? And I think you begin to, kind of as a member of the jury, like, what, what, what in the world would motivate this man to do that? I mean, they're saying there's a brain laying beside the kid's feet. What would make a, a, a father do that to a kid? And, and I think as a member of a jury, you got to believe that there's some backstory you're not being told, so all of a sudden the financial crimes are admissible in, in this particular trial. I think Patrick nailed it. I mean, I would have gone into this trial assuming that eventually this jury is going to find out that my partner had done some pretty devious things in relation to finance. He had stolen from his partners. He'd stolen from clients. He'd stolen from his escrow account. I mean, he'd lived a life of luxury, I would imagine. Don't know how Alec lived, but but we're led to believe he lived a pretty cool life. 
um, lived on a big hunting plantation at a beach home in Edisto, um, you know, partnered a big prestigious law firm in that part of the state. Now, once again, I don't know what you do in Hampton, Colleton County to spend a million dollars a year. I mean, how many deer and doves can you kill? How many birds can you hunt in that part of the state? Um, but, but I would imagine upkeep on a beach house in Edisto gets really expensive. Upkeep on a plantation, um, you know, Moselle, 1,700 acres. I would imagine the caretaking and responsibility of taking care of that could get pretty expensive. Dogs and, yeah, you know what I'm saying, Rev, staff and, and what, what am I trying, you know, the upkeep, the, 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 the maintenance and operating of Moselle would be expensive. Um, but I think when, when the prosecutors were told yes on allowing the details of these, um, these other crimes and, and the financial matters as evidence, you, you got to believe that's going to make it easier to prove the case of the prosecution because now you've got a motive. And I think Kinsley said yesterday that he was always motivated by making Alec blink. You know, not being bullied or intimidated by their years of running that part of the state as it relates to judiciary. And, um, you know, is Kinsley tougher than the rest? To corner Springsteen, I don't know. Don't have any idea. But um, but I think embracing that to begin with it would have been a better strategy than hoping and crossing your fingers that it never makes its way into the hearing. In other words, hey, I've got a man here that has done some pretty lousy things. He has indeed stolen from his law firm. He has stolen from his friends. He has lied to the bank. The bank has been complicit in some of his lies. In fact, there's a, a former bank president facing criminal charges financially related. He's done a lot of these things, but he didn't kill his wife and kid. You see where I'm headed? And all of a sudden the jury goes, okay, the 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 information, I mean, it doesn't matter whether it's admissible or not because you've already done a mea culpa. You've already said, I ain't representing Mother Teresa. I mean, I don't want you to believe that Alec Murdoch is, you know, Billy Graham or Mother Teresa. Alec Murdoch's a bad guy, but it, but we're not on trial for a bad guy. We're on trial whether he killed his wife and kid, and I'm here to tell you he did not. Despite all these other things he did, he did not kill his wife and kid. Now, I don't know that he killed his wife and kid. I think he did, and I think the financial disaster that was about to implode or explode in his life and the narcissism and what what I, you know, and who am I to say this, what I think is the kind of the sociopathic behavior of Alec Murdoch, and, and Patrick said thumbnail, you don't care at all any about other people's opinion or feelings or what happens to them. I mean, in other words, if I come in here as a sociopath and do this radio show, I never consider Dave's opinion, Dave's feelings, what happens to Dave Baker. I mean, if I leave my water bottle, um, Celsius can, and um, and coffee mug here, that's Dave Baker's problem. I mean, if he doesn't want to clean it up, then, you know, I'll find somebody else too. You never consider anybody else's opinion. Um that's sociopathic. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Tim in Florence. Good morning, Tim. Hey, Dave. Hey, uh, Ken. How y'all doing? How are you? I'm good. All right. So I called in yesterday. I used my uh, first-time caller card. If you recall, I was fired up about the Chinese balloon stuff. So, you know, after years of listening to you, that was the one thing I chose to call the first time on. So, now, here I am calling for the second day in a row, and, and if, if we have the time to do it, I want to be a little bit serious and a little bit silly. Uh, on the serious stuff, and I'll tie it back into this Alec stuff, that'll be the silly part. Uh, Ken, would you say, back on the Chinese balloon stuff, would you say that that Chinese balloon posed a threat to our national security? 
I don't know that I could say yay or nay. I don't know. Okay. Well, just humor me and let's say, okay, it was. Okay. I don't, I don't like the idea of a Chinese surveillance balloon floating willy-nilly over the continental United States. That makes me real nervous. Me, me too, and we agree on that because we don't know what that balloon was doing. Do it. I don't buy that it was a civilian balloon. I mean, there's nothing that, it's like you made the point yesterday, nothing that comes out of China that China doesn't have their hands all over. So we don't know, but that's the point. We don't know. But let's, let's say it was a threat to our national security. The next question would be, was there anything that Joe Biden could have done to stop it? Yes. Joe Biden is commander-in-chief of the most effective military in the history of mankind. Absolutely. So even if we uh, played devil's advocate and said, well, we didn't have time to stop it before it got to, to the Aleutian Islands, that's a bunch of crap because, again, most sophisticated uh, defense in all this, we knew where it was going and we let it come in there. But then once it went into Canada, we had a Joe Biden had a second chance of getting it right when it came over into Montana. And I've been to Montana. I've been fly fishing there before. There's a reason why they call it Big Sky Country. You could have shot it down there, and the recovery efforts would have been easier there. But so, yes, he could have done something about it. So the fact that it could have been a threat to national security and he could have done something about it, the next question is, was he derelict in his duty to protect our national security? Yes. I say yes. Oh, I don't yeah. think there's any question. So, Absolutely he was. Okay, so I'm connecting all these dots here. Then then ultimately, if it was a threat to national security, he could have done something about it. He didn't. He was derelict in that duty to protect our national security. Then is that impeachable? I say yes, and obviously that's what uh, Congress needs to determine. But, you know, what, what do you think about that? Is it impeachable? Yeah, I mean, no question about it. If we find out that the Biden administration knew there was a Chinese spy balloon, thank you for the call, appreciate it. If we knew, or excuse me, if the administration knew unequivocally that there was a Chinese spy, spy airship, because this guy, stop saying it's a balloon. It has the ability to navigate as it sees fit. It can go with the jet stream. It can go against the jet stream. It can go as high as 65,000 feet. It can go as low as 30,000 feet. It's not at the mercy of the wind currents. I mean, when you disable it, I would imagine it's at the mercy of the wind currents, but but it is a powered Chinese um, airship. You're right. It's not motorized by and large. I mean, it's helium and hydrogen, but, but it does have the ability to navigate as it sees fit. Once again, it goes with the jet stream at times. It goes against the jet stream at times. I'd love to see a full-fledged investigation on what Biden knew, why he chose. Here's the more important question. I mean, we know what he knew. He knew there was a Chinese um, airship floating over the continental United States, and he didn't do anything. Now, now, I think it's important to know whether or not the United States military had disabled whatever the Chinese airship was trying to do. I mean, was it here maliciously? Was it here um, randomly? Uh, you know, I don't think the Chinese do anything randomly. But I think you've got to prove a point before you impeach. But, but yes, I mean, I think it should be, we should have a committee, probably the, um, the Foreign Intelligence Committee, maybe the National Security Committee, um, Homeland Security, probably to some degree needs to get involved in this. And, um, and let's establish that the president knew 
and did nothing about it. And if he knew and did nothing about it, did he put American interest at risk? It's hard to say he didn't. One of the questions I'd have is if I asked a member of the military, did we disable its abilities? And he says, yes. How do we know that? I mean, how do we know that China doesn't have some sort of way? I mean, if we disable, how do we know they don't have a backup plan um, to, to, to reestablish control of the China? I mean, it's just it's odd to me that um, that we allowed, and I go back to Montana. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't want to say I can understand because I can't because Alaska is just as much a state as any other state is. I mean, it's the United States of America. It doesn't say, hey, the first 48, and remember, you know, later came Alaska to Hawaii. I mean, they're sovereign territory. They're part of the United States of America. There's a reason there's 50 stars on the um, on the flag. Well, w- when it comes into Alaska, I- I'm somewhat more understanding and sympathetic to not shooting it down in Alaska. I'm not sympathetic. I'm not understanding. But once it makes its way into the continental United States, that there's a um, there's Idaho and then there's Montana. Uh, I looked this morning. Montana's 99% land, 1% water, seven people per acre. So if the debris field is 10 miles, get 70 people to move. Just tell 70 people in Montana, <laughs> get out hey, of the way. We, we got a debris field of 10 miles. I mean, it's, it's one of the most sparsely populated, you know, states in America. Um, what, what's the total population of Montana? Is it more or less than a million? I mean, I think it's less than a million. I know Wyoming's only about 450 or 60,000. Um, uh, Montana's, what, 150,000 square miles-ish, somewhere um, thereabout. I mean, there, there's plenty of places to shoot a 1.1 million. Okay, a million people in Montana, 150,000 acres of land, 99% land, 1% water, seven people per um, square mile. I mean, just, you know, cl- clear out 10 miles. Uh, you wouldn't have to do much. Uh, you'd have to move more cattle than you would people, <laughs> probably. 843 6610937 Tim asked the question if the balloon the airship was a threat to national security. Okay, they can argue, oh yes it wasn't. Yes it was, no it wasn't. But if they say no, how do we know that? Do we know it wasn't a threat? Well, I mean they've got to prove that. Right. I mean if, if it was completely and totally disabled and you can prove that, then, then I I'm, I'm more comfortable with with that scenario than I am the other. But we don't know that, Rev. All we know all the responses being from the current administration is, is may, well, we may have dropped the ball, but Trump dropped it three times. <laughs> I mean, that, that's the official response but Trump. from this administration. It's always, you know, what Orange Man did. That's, uh, that's the reference point. That's the new measure of success and failure or competence or incompetence of the new Democrat Party. Take a break. Back in a minute. So Rev sticks his head of the, uh, in the studio during the break and says, I hadn't thought of that, but, it, you know, Two million bucks is a lot of money. I mean, that's a settlement. But but when when you're hurting because your daughter's no longer alive, whether it's right or not, you want the other family to hurt. You want the perpetrator of the crime against your to pay the price. You better believe it. I mean, you're paying the price. You're grieving. You're emotionally drained. You'll never see your daughter again. Your life will never be the same. If Bill Gates has a hundred billion dollars and you get a couple of million, he's not hurting. Like you, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but I don't know how you keep score there. I know if something happened to one of my kids and another family was reckless or careless or negligent, I would want revenge. I'm sorry. I would want revenge. 
You shouldn't be motivated by revenge. It's a, it's kind of an overwhelming compulse, and it gets real dangerous and sketchy if you aren't careful. But I know that if something happened to my kid, and I felt somebody was ultimately responsible by their irresponsibility, by, by their negligence, by their unwillingness to do what they should do, I'd want a pound of flesh. And in Bill Gates's world, $2 million is half an ounce of flesh. I want more. I want a billion. I want $2 billion. I want 50% of Microsoft. Right. I mean, I want you to hurt as much as I hurt. I'm not saying you're going to lose something. You better believe like it. I did. I mean, I, I lost somebody that I love. I will never, ever get to interact with that person who means more to me than anything in this world. You took that from me. And because you took that from me, there's a price you must pay. And it's not a million or two or three or four dollars. It's can I make you hurt as much as I hurt? Once again, I just think that's human, the human condition. Um, once again, I'm not defending it. I'm not saying it's the way it should be, but but it is what it is. Um, are you going to put a price on a person's life? I mean, the insurance companies do, don't they? I mean, I, you know, some of the actuaries, I mean, that's basically what they're saying. The likelihood of this person dying before they're 70 is, is this percentage. So we're going to take a premium of this much and roll the dice that they'll live. They'll outlive the term of the, of the policy. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. William in McCall, you're on the air. How y'all doing, Ken, Dave? You know, they talk about this fire balloon or whatever it is. And, you know, it's a waste of breath. There's nothing going to be done to nobody. I mean, look at the way the government has done past and present. Whatever they break the law, uh, we pat them on the back, send them home with retirement pay and everything else. It, it ain't going to happen. Y'all just wasting y'all breath talking about it. And talking to the people about it because there's nothing going to be done about it. Millie can do what he wants to do. Biden can do what he wants to do. They can do what they want to do out there, and there's nothing going to be done. And the American people ain't going to stand up against it. They're going to sit there and suck their thumb and take whatever they get dished out to them. Thank you, William. Appreciate that. Well, I mean, all I can tell you is I'm not in the business of punishing or penalties. I mean, I don't have the authority to dole out punishment. All I can do is engage an audience, however large you may be, however interested you may be, and we'll discuss it. But when it comes to what comes next, I mean, I, I, there's nothing I can do. It's a test for the Republicans in, that are in control well, I mean, of the House of Representatives yeah, and, now, right? and it's kind of an easy test to me. Should be. You know, a lot of foreign policy is complicated. You know, should we be here? Should we be there? How involved here? How involved there? A balloon, a Chinese spy balloon slash spaceship slash, uh, uh, slash airship made its way into American airspace. We did nothing about it in Alaska. It then went into Canada. I mean, so, so somebody knew. I mean, you and I didn't, but somebody in the American government. Here's the deal. If somebody knew and did nothing, let me ask you this, Rev. What is worse? If somebody in the American military intelligence community knew and did nothing, or we didn't know. They're both unacceptable. Well, I mean, you you better believe it. What is more unacceptable? To not know. I mean, to me, that's more unacceptable. We spend nearly a trillion dollars a year in national defense. Part of our national defense is not just Ukrainian uh, of interest. I mean, part of our national defense is curing our borders. Now, Now, we know how derelict we've been in our responsibilities at the southern border. We know that. I mean, the American people realize 
what we can debate amnesty and pathway to citizenship and all these other ideas and notions that we politic day after day after day. But the American people know that part of the military intelligence community's job is to keep us safe at home, right? I mean, why did 9-11 happen? We had a breakdown. Top, top priority. I mean, we had a breakdown. We had a breakdown on 9-11. I mean, we allowed people to get on planes with, with um, you know, air. Uh, what about uh, box cutters and, uh, you know, other things to hurt people with. And they, they hijacked and took over planes. They flew them into buildings. Innocent people died. We learned out of that came Homeland Security and a lot of other um, entities and agencies within our government. But so, so we know that the American people expect to be kept safe in their homeland. So, so uh, a spy balloon makes its way into Alaska off the coast of Russia, China. Japan. It was really off the coast of uh, Japan, to be honest with you. Well, it would have been north of Japan. See, uh, somebody kind of pinned me down yesterday and said, that's off the coast of Russia. Well, I mean, it is off the coast of Russia, but the spy balloon, if we believe some of the, um, some of the trajectory of path, the spy balloon never went into Russian airspace. I mean, it left China, drifted, or was powered to the west, or excuse me, to the east, just below the Korean Peninsula, which would be North and South Korea, just below Japan, the, the island of Japan, and then it kind of began trekking more northeast, pretty significantly more northeast, and it enters Alaska, and then it kind of goes through Alaska, and it begins, I don't know if the jet stream directed its path or is powered by some um, Chinese operatives, but it begins to kind of, once it leaves American airspace over Alaska, it goes into um, Western Canada. And it kind of goes, meanders through Western Canada, comes into Montana, and that's when we became aware of it. Now, now I got to believe, I hope and pray, knock on wood, that the American government was aware that there was a Chinese balloon um, traversing across Alaska. We'd like to believe that $900 billion of military spending and defense budget a Chinese balloon balloon doesn't sneak in the back door in Alaska. I mean, wow. I mean, if that's the case. After all, it's traveling at tens of miles an hour. Well, I mean, just imagine, just imagine the Chinese leader saying, hey, they're so damn tied up in Ukraine. They're not paying attention to the oh. back door. So let's, you know, let's send the spy balloon. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm being conspiracy theorist here 101. But I mean, just hypothetically say right. that, that, you know, we believed or they believed, the Chinese believed that we were so consumed by what's happening in Ukraine, that we weren't paying attention to the the international waters off of the coast of Alaska. Well, let's test and see how much you know, they are paying attention. But, but we're making these. But these right. are the questions we need answers. Got to consider. We don't know the answer to these questions. All we know is that the administration has offered no explanation except they did it once and Trump did it three times, and the American people deserve a better answer than that. I mean, we need a full investigation. Who dropped the ball? This is not acceptable. So, so for this not to be, for this to not, why did we not shoot it off or shoot it down off the coast? Why did we not shoot it down over Canada? Why did we not shoot it down in sparsely populated Montana? Why did we wait until it made its way all the way across the continent of the United States, off the coast of South Carolina, where repressive regimes go to die, right? <laughs> <laughs> that ain't the first shot fired off the coast of South Carolina in regards to repressive regimes. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Larry in the PD. Good morning. Hey, good morning. You know, I was shocked to find out that this is not the first time this has happened. 
that there was one that skirted over Texas and there was one that skirted over Hawaii. There's one that's been over India. You know, you made a 9-11 analogy, and I'll make another one. The reason that 9-11 happened was because over and over and over, people that took hostages on planes had conditioned us to believe if you'll just sit still and let us do what we want to do, everything will be fine. I almost feel like China is is conditioning us to just accept the fact that they've got balloons floating all over the place, and hey, don't worry about them. They're 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 no big deal. And then one day that balloon is going to be a big deal, and we're all going to say, you know what, we were a bunch of idiots for ever letting this go on as long as we did. So, what do you think about that? I don't think that's far fetched. I mean, I, I, I can easily have to believe consider that yeah, as reality. Sure, sure. Um, and uh, thank you, Larry. Appreciate the call. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I you know testing the waters so to speak hey let's let's send a a helium charged balloon with a uh you know some sort of um payload across america and see how they react let's see what biden what, what biden's team's response will be in other words um i mean china knows that american airspace begins 12 nautical miles off the coast of alaska every nation of the world knows that's the deal so once the the Chinese balloon enters American airspace. You, you got to believe they're looking at their watch. Wonder what they'll do now. I think that's the point Larry's trying to make. So, you know, the, the question I have, and I don't know the answer to this, were they in charge of the balloon or not? Was the balloon at the mercy of the jet stream and some of the prevailing forces? We know that at times the balloon went from 60,000 to 40,000. We know it at times it went with the air currents and at other times it went against the air current. So we know while over Alaska and over Canada, somebody was in charge of the balloon. The balloon had um, capabilities to go where whomever was in charge chose for it to go. Once it gets into Billings, Montana, it becomes a news story. Somebody in the public sees the balloon in Billings, calls a news service. The news service says, do what? Yeah, there's this big balloon, man, floating around. It's a UFO or something. So that's when the media kind of made the story mainstream. Um, when did we know it was a Chinese, um, spy balloon? Don't, don't have any idea. Um, it's a little bit jokey, Rev. I mean, I even joked around with it right. over the weekend. I'm like, so there's a balloon. Fl- it's not a fighter jet running Mach 3. I mean, th- th- there, there's a certain optic to that. But it's, to, it's interesting to think Larry's theory through. So we're conditioned to say, oh, these are no threat. They were just, you know, it got off course or, you know, they're just not doing anything malicious with it. And then all of a sudden you have one. It's a balloon, Rev. It's a balloon. Right. But then there's one floating. Oh, it just happens to be near Manhattan and another one near Washington, D.C. and another one near Los Angeles. And, oh, these are nothing. And then we find out maybe something is a little bit different with a little different intent. Okay. Think of what you're saying. So, the the first balloon makes its way from Alaska, Canada, Montana, South Carolina. The next balloon, I mean, it's almost like they okay. Th- there's test run one, and, and probably in test run one. I mean, Larry's talking about skirting the coast of Key West, Florida, skirting the coast of Alaska, skirting the coast of. It wouldn't surprise me, and I think you would agree with me here, Rip. It wouldn't surprise me if a Chinese spy balloon had got into American airspace around Hawaii. I mean, that's, that's in right. the Pacific Ocean. I mean, the uh, western China borders the Pacific Ocean. That wouldn't surprise me. But it does surprise me that one made its way through Alaska, made its way into Montana, 
made its way off the coast of South Carolina. And we're told that the only thing to be concerned about is the three times it happened when Trump was president. But that's a bizarre argument to articulate to the American people. But orange man bad. Orange man is really, really bad. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Mike in Effingham. Good morning. Morning, Ken. I I hate to always have to call in and and go against your callers, but we got to stop that us versus them with Democrat against Republicans and get to the us versus them, us versus our enemies. Anything that flies in the air uh, in our airspace has a piece of equipment on it called an IFF system, which is identified friend or foe. And if the equipment, if the uh, thing in the air doesn't identify itself as a friend, then we scramble and intercept. So if that thing was in that airspace, we knew it was there. And if we didn't know it was there, then the Alaska Command dropped the ball because there's things called air traffic controllers that's military and civilian that's supposed to attract supposed to attract everything in our airspace. So we know if it was there when Trump was there or if it was there now, and we know who dropped the ball on it. But what we do is we fight amongst ourselves, which which is what's giving China and Russia the uh, the advantage on us right now because we're so distracted with beating up each other that we're not paying attention to what they were doing. See, they could have ran that thing, at, and if it was a spy thing, then it was identified as weather or something like that because we do the we use the same tactics. We outfit our equipment as something else, and we send it out there, and we use it for surveillance. Until And until it's notified, it, it, it gets away with it. It's all part of the game. And I'll call in again when you got more time. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate <laughs> that. Mike, I don't, I don't disagree with you. I mean, I think America at its best is when we're not fighting amongst ourselves, when we're having serious debates about issues that matter to all people. But that ain't where we are right now. And I don't know how to sit down with a Democrat who believes it's okay to allow an eight-year-old to enter into a sex change operation or or a fourth-grade teacher be forced to teach about trans. I mean, I don't know how to come to some amicable conclusion or agreement on what is best moving forward. Continue tomorrow. Enjoy your day.